morning, ghouls and fiends, and welcome once again to another edition of the Ministry of Horror. Now, I'm your host, Tez, as per usual. We are live on twitch.tv forward slash Tezis. Thank you very much. That was a notification because uh, Vix has subscribed for the second month in a row. Um, thank you very much, Vix. We are live here on twitch.tv forward slash Tezius. Um, <clears throat> check us out on podcast feeds, whether you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's a very somber start to the show. Just uh, <laughs> two months of me. Yeah, baby. Um, it's a very somber start to the show. I thought I'd uh, I mentioned in the Discord we're just going to have a little drink at the start of tonight's show. It doesn't have to be alcoholic at all. Whatever is your favourite tipple, whether it's an alcoholic beverage, whether it's a soft drink, tea, coffee, water, whatever. But last night... We lost one of the OGs. Um, I have, uh, as people may know, if they follow me on social media, if they know me in person, uh, prior to being father of the Pooch of Horror, um, I've been a guinea pig dad for a number of years. Six years, to be exact. Um, and yeah, you know, it's been a hectic 24 hours. Last night, uh, Shan, Shaniqua, Shan Shan, whatever you want to call her, um, passed fairly, fairly suddenly, kind of out the blue. I guess it's that age, but... Uh, yeah, still was pretty, um, pretty crazy. Uh, so I won't kind of go into the ins and outs of it, but you know, it's it's never nice losing a pet. So if you have a drink ready, whatever your drink of choice may be, I'd implore you to uh, raise a glass. Uh, this may be very unwise for me. I've gone for some uh, Tennessee Jack Apple uh, Apple Jack Bourbon, and I haven't put any Coke in it. And I'm a bit of a wuss with straight spirits, but um, if you're watching live, you can see me grimace. But you know, for for Shan Shan. Ooh. That hits the nose. Oh my god. Oh. Repeats right up the nostrils. Anyway. We'll pour one more of those, but I will put coke in it, and that's my quota for the evening. But I felt it was apropos to, you know, to honor her say salut i think that's the correct terminology if you're hearing that that's me pouring coke into my drink i'm not taking a piss on stream <laughs> so how's everyone been it's been a little while since we've done a show that's better that's better I gotta have a mixer it's been a little while since we've done a show so there's not been another hiatus, none of that nonsense. We uh, we reformatted for this year from from the return in February onwards of doing it every other week. And the last show, or what was supposed to be the last show two weeks ago, I'd start coming down with what seems to be potentially um, tonsillitis again. I say again because it was around November-ish time. I, I, I remember having that uh, sort of thing again. I haven't managed to get to the doctors either time. Last time um, I phoned and they said, oh, can you take a picture and send it on the app? We'll send you a link. I tried, I tried to take a picture, but I mean, I don't, know, I don't know about you. It's pretty difficult to take a picture of your own tonsils. My mouth doesn't actually open that wide, considering I talk a lot. And um, so I sent the picture. Never heard anything back. And then this last time I kind of thought, well, it seems to be the same sort of thing of, you know, swollen sort of feeling uh, around, around the neck. Um difficulty swallowing the difficulty swallowing after the sort of the initial kind of painful period it's difficulty swallowing for like the last week or so which has been more annoying and that does seem to be kind of clearing up 
now touch wood um really annoying so if that happens again i will speak to uh, the doctors i mean it could be because many many years ago i got glandular fever and i'm sure that's meant to repeat in your system but i mean i haven't had anything like that since i got glandular fever which was like i say probably about seven years ago now six seven years ago um yeah um so we didn't do the show last week or the last show i should say two weeks back Last week, I was thinking of doing it on Friday, but then I um, I had a social event with some friends I've not seen for a while, and I thought I can't really pass that up. So I was then going to potentially do it on the Saturday, and I kind of thought, you know what, we're doing the show back to normal this coming week. Why rush out a show just for the sake of it? It seems a bit kind of counterproductive, and, you know, I don't want to get back into the mindset of rushing uh, shows. You know, they should be fun, um, and that kind of takes away partial part of the fun element. So we are back. Uh, and in the interim, I've managed to get down the cinema. I've managed to watch a new horror release, which we will be reviewing later on, and that is Evil Dead Rise. I've got a couple of other reviews. They're older films. Um, I was going to try and squeeze in another newer film. I just kind of ran out of time. Uh, so that I will be reviewing, not next week, because obviously I'm not doing a show next week, but the week after, I'm going to try and have reviewed um, Kids vs. Aliens, which sounds like a very sort of dumb title but i believe it's a spin-off of one of the shorts shorts in um vhs2 uh which obviously is a horror anthology we've talked about before there's a segment where there's like a horror alien invasion of a kid's party it was pretty good actually uh, i would uh not even sorry vhs2 is one of those sequels which it's not as good as the first film but it does have some very memorable segments i thought uh, Vix in the chat, R.I.P. Shan Shan. I'll raise a scotch for you this weekend without making a silly face, which is um, which is said to make you smile and lift the mood. Um, all right, okay, yeah, yeah. Which is said to make you smile and lift the mood. That's fine. Yeah, yeah I'll get that. Thank you very much, Vix. Um, and yeah, the main discussion point for this evening's show, something which I'm surprised that I never talked about last year, considering it's one of the franchises very close to my heart up there up there alongside Halloween and The Thing, we're going to talk about the Xenomorphs, uh, the cinematic appearances of the Xenomorphs. Uh, now, we do know that they're in production currently on a Fede Alvarez-helmed alien film. Very exciting. Fede Alvarez is a director who I, I really like his work. You know, he did The Evil Dead, or Evil Dead in 2013, which I thought was excellent. And he also did Don't Breathe, which was a very tense thriller. Um, so in his hands, I have hope. Um, I have had hope for a lot of previous Alien films, um, but this is a director where I, well, I mean, Ridley Scott's a director where you should think that it should be good, but anyway, I'm going to temper my expectations. One of the things that I, I've pulled together some news for tonight's show, but one of the things that um, I didn't notice in the news, which I will talk about now, I've seen it on Twitter uh, today, is the title has been announced for the new Exorcist sequel, the first part you know, eye roll of a new trilogy from David Gordon Green. Now we do have, um, we do have the uh, Halloween 2018 that he did, which was excellent. So we know that he can do a good horror sequel, a good horror continuation. But we've, we've talked ad nauseum about my feelings about trilogies being announced, you know, you know, just make, make one good film and then see how it goes. Anyway, but that is called The Exorcist Believer, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't got my 
I'm not going to check my, my phone right now. But I believe it's called um, Believer. So, firstly, I'm happy that it's not just being called The Exorcist, because I did think that's the route we were going to go. You know, the whole sequel being titled the name of the film it's a sequel to, which I think is so fucking dumb. But no, it's called The Exorcist Believer, I believe. Um, don't mind the title. Don't mind the title. Don't care that it's a, you know, subtitle, because a lot of the films are. It's It doesn't seem to be the modus operandi these days to have numbered sequels. Um, I mean, we've had that with Scream 6, but initially Scream 5 was just called Scream. So, yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, Fran McCann in the chat. Hey, Fran, hope you've had a good week. Um, unfortunately, we currently have more bad alien films than good ones. Yeah, that's true. That is the unfortunate scenario we are currently in, which is why my hopes and expectations are tempered. Same with The Exorcist. People tend to forget that there is a franchise there. Um, because a lot of the sequels aren't good, or the, the sequels prequels aren't good. The TV show is definitely worth a watch. That is on Prime currently. And it's a pseudo-sequel. And that's a little bit of a spoiler, because that's a reveal that comes halfway through the season. I won't go into the, the ins and outs of the details, but it's so well done. I was not expecting it to be connected to the films at all, because quite often we get TV shows that are, you know, have the title of the film that they're in the franchise of but it's not actually connected but the, what, what they did in season one of the exorcist tv show i thought was really good it was really well done i really liked how they connected it to the first film um and yeah people just don't, don't tend to know that there are sequels to the exorcist and prequels because a lot of them are bad <laughs> unfortunately um same with the omen but to a lesser extent i think people are aware of the omen the omen 2 i've still not seen the omen 3 but that's just that's my fault i'm pretty sure it's on disney plus so i don't know what i'm playing at not having watched that um the other bit of news before we get knee deep into the proper news is we have had a trailer this past week for insidious the new insidious film i think it's called the red door uh, it's a return of uh, Patrick Wilson and his family with Rose Byrne and uh, Dalton. I think the child's name is Dalton, the youngest one. So we are returning to that family and continuing it. And Patrick Wilson is directing this film as well. The trailer looks decent. I do like the um, the Insidious films. I think the first one is excellent. I love that. It's probably the first film I ever went to the cinema solo to watch just because none of my friends wanted to see it because they're not really big horror fans. And I thought, you know what? When I watch a film, I don't talk in the cinema watching it. I know some people do. That seems to be the thing these days, and I fucking hate that. Um, but I kind of thought, if I, you know, if I want to see a film, why not just go and watch it? Um, you know, I mean, yeah, part of the fun after a film is coming out talking about it. You know, either getting food afterwards or on, on the drive back and dissecting it. But I thought, you know, I shouldn't let that hold me back from watching films on a big screen with amazing sound. Um, and so more recently, I watched Scream Six at the cinema by myself, and then Evil Dead Rise. So I do implore you, if you ever sort of think, ah, oh, I wish I could watch more films in the cinema, but my friends and my partner's not interested, just go by yourself, honestly. It's the same as if you're watching a film at home by yourself. Yeah, it costs a bit of money, but you're watching it on a huge screen with great sound. So um, Insidious 1 I really enjoyed. Insidious 2 is good. It has some good moments. Um, it's a little bit cartoony, though. And I say cartoony because there is a, a spirit of the mother of the woman in black. Spencer Crane, I think his name is, I can't remember. And she is a little bit over the top, just a little bit campy, a little bit too campy. And it doesn't seem to be intended either, because it's still meant to be horror. It's not like the tone of the film has changed, just the performance. Um, Insidious 3, I think, is excellent. I think Insidious 3 is so underrated. Um, and then Insidious 4, I, maybe I need to give that a rewatch. I've only seen it the once. 
I thought it was a massive step down, personally. They're also getting the Nun Two comes coming out in September, so the Conjuring franchise is is rife with uh, with films. Uh, found the chat. Daytime cinema is good. Getting to watch a horror on the big screen in the near empty cinema just adds to the atmosphere. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And you're guaranteed to generally have yeah, like you say, a near empty cinema because it's the middle of the day. You know, um, it's the the time that I prefer to kind of go down, honestly, because I think the last time I went to an evening film and it really was just like oh god um was halloween 2018 I, I i saw halloween kills in the cinema and to be honest that was good but it wasn't a, it wasn't an amazing film but halloween 2018 it was just it was a midnight screening so i was expecting it to just be nerds like-minded nerds but no there's so many obnoxious teenagers there just thinking that they that they you know they own the cinema it was kind of like the cinema screening from scream 2 and I know some people go, oh, that's part of the fun. It's the atmosphere, getting involved, getting enjoying it. Fuck that. No, I've paid to watch a film. <laughs> I've paid to watch a film, not to hear everyone thinking they're the star of the film. Obnoxious, obnoxious. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's one of those things that distracts me in Christ. People who watch, uh, watch or listen to this via um, the MOS network, Ministry of Slam, or the, the wrestling arena, as it's now called, We'll know that sometimes some of my gripes are just minor little things that I'll happen to notice, which are really inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, and I'm aware of that. I mean, I watched this week's Dynamite, not to go off on too much of a tangent for non-wrestling fans, but I watched this week's Dynamite, and there was a guy in the front row, and you've paid a lot of money in the front row, you know, fair play, but he just wanted to be part of the show so much. He turned up wearing sunglasses. You're indoors, mate. Wearing sunglasses, the whole thing, and constantly every action. Standing up, motioning around to the crowd, like, oh, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Just... I think he was very aware that he was in front of the hard camera and really wanted to do his best to get noticed. And you get that with some fans. I really don't understand that mentality, but I guess they want to be part of the experience and based... I think it's ego at the end of the day. But anyway, that's a thing of me getting... (laughs) Uh, obnoxiousness is my my side tangent there and the the weird little things which will gripe me um yeah it's just me um fran the fran in the chat to misquote piper i've come to watch film and eat popcorn and i've eaten my popcorn during the trailers (laughs) i mean yeah that's pretty much it's the reason i stopped buying popcorn one because they are pretty high in calories actually for what they are and you know i'm trying to trying to do better there and two i will eat them throughout the whole trailers and then have nothing for the film um, but yeah, the annoyance. I've come to watch a film and eat popcorn, so shut the F up. Anyway, that's enough of my tangents of what annoys Tez. I think I'm I'm due to have a little rant after my last 24 hours. Um, let's move on to the seven new horror films that have been released this week, including The Black Demon in theatres. So this comes, as per usual, from bloodydisgusting.com. All of my horror news, I'll just shout it out now, from bloodydisgusting.com. John Squires, all the other, Brad Mishka, all the other editors there, so, you know, be sure to check their site out. It's very good. Um, so, here are the releases all this week. Um... After scaring up 168 million worldwide, Scream 6 has just arrived for purchase on digital today. I think that may just be America. I don't think it's uh, available here yet. Um, and Bo Disgusting has learned this week that Scream 6 will be unleashed on 4K Ultra HD Steelbook on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD on July 11th, 2023. That's quite a while away. Actually, no, it's not. We're in August. I don't know why I thought that was next year. Not with it. Um, in the brand new movie... 
The Scream saga continues with the four survivors of the Ghostface killings as they leave Woodsboro behind and start a fresh chapter. Uh, Radio Science's Matt um, Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette were both back behind the camera for the latest Scream movie, which is officially titled Scream 6. I reviewed Scream 6 uh, a little while ago. We're still in April, yeah. For some reason, I thought July was next year. I'm really not with it, Fran. Um, I reviewed Scream 6. I had a great time with it. I think I might have given it an 8.5 out of 10. Um, I'd, I'd maybe even, on reflection, thinking about it, go up to 9, really. I, I think it was very, very good. Um, so if you like the Scream films, I'd highly recommend it personally. Next up, a new creature feature from New Zealand filmmaker Scott Walker, who did The Frozen Ground, which I think I've seen. That was pretty good, actually. Uh, the Tank came to select theatres last week and is now available on digital beginning today. Set in the 1970s, The Tank is a story about a young family who awakens a horde of creatures. Academy Award winning special effects supervisor and creative director Richard Taylor and his team at Peter Jackson's VFX studio Weta Workshop created the creature effects. In the brand new creature feature, after mysteriously inheriting an abandoned coastal property, Ben and his family accidentally unleash an ancient, long dormant creature that terrorised the entire region, including his own ancestors for generations. Uh, Lucian Baccaran, Matt Whelan, Zara Nasbaum, Regina Hegemon, Jack Barry, and Holly Sh um, Shervy star. Scott Walker wrote and directed The Tank. So if you're a fan of a creature feature, which I know Vix is, new creature feature, yes please, uh, be sure to keep an eye out for The Tank. Next up, she's not real. She's more than that. Winner of Best International Feature at Fantasia Film Festival, the sci-fi movie The Artifice Girl is being released at home this week. The film comes to theatres on demand and digital Thursday, yesterday. Franklin Rich wrote the and um, wrote the directed. Well, okay, that's written badly. Poor, but disgusting. Uh, Franklin Rich wrote the directed the acclaimed sci-fi thriller. In the film, a team of special agents discovers a revolutionary new computer program to bait and trap online predators. After teaming up with the program's trouble developer, they soon find that the AI is rapidly advancing beyond its original purpose. Uh, Tatum Matthews, David Girard, Sander Nichols, Franklin Rich, and Lance Henriksen star. Lance Henriksen, who is... Uh, I mean, sci-fi and, and horror um, royalty, as we will be discussing a bit later on. Um, and Fran McCann in the chat, the trailer for The Tank does look like it could be good. I've not seen the trailer, but I will keep an eye out for it. Uh, next up, from Rambo Last Blood director Adrian Grunberg, The Black Demon will release exclusively in theatres on April 28th. In the film, Josh Lucas battles a giant megalodon shark. Uh, when oilman Paul Sturgis takes his family to Bahia Negra, the crown jewel of the of Baja and the site of Paul's best performing rig, the vibrant Mexican coastal town he once knew was mysteriously crumbled. In the recovered ghost town, the last inhabitants tell Paul the offshore platform has awoken El Demonio. Scared to be left alone, the family follows Paul out to the platform, and just after they get on, the man and boat that risked bringing them is ferociously attacked by a massive black shark. This shark is unlike any other creature, a shark of legend known as the Black Demon. It has laid claim to the local waters aggressively protecting Mother Nature against human threats. It kills everything and repeatedly charges the oil rig itself, threatening to destroy it. Paul and his family are stranded with the few men who have survived and now discover explosive charges have been set on the legs of the platform. That does... It's, <laughs> we've talked before about blurbs that seem to be giving away maybe too much of the plot. Um... But, I mean, that seems interesting. If you like a megalodon or a large shark um, film, check it out. 
Vic's in the chat, and a new shark movie, best week ever, for movies I will like anyway. Yes, um, we do know that Vix is a Creature Feature fan, a shark film fan especially. Next up, writer-director Jelmarie Helander, who did Rare Exports, which we reviewed for the Christmas show, it was very good, uh, and Big Game, is black, back with Lionsgate's Sisu, an ultra-violent genre movie that's also coming to, mo um, to movie theatres this Friday, so today. Saw the trailer for this, actually, it does look pretty interesting. Uh, this time, Helander reteams with Rare Exports actor Jorma Tomila for one epic and hyper-violent period adventure through the wilderness of Lapland in northern Finland. During the last desperate days of World War II, a solitary prospector crosses paths from Nazis on a scorched earth retreat in northern Finland. When the Nazis steal his gold, they quickly discover that they have just tangled with no ordinary miner. While there is no direct translation for the Finnish word Sisu, the legendary ex-commando will embody what Sisu means, a white-knuckled form of courage and unimaginable determination in the face of overwhelming odds. And no matter what the Nazis throw at him, this one-man death squad will go to outrageous lengths to get his gold back, even if it means killing every last Nazi in his path. Sisu also stars Jack Doolan, Mimosa Willamo, and Omni Tomila. Yeah, the trailer for this looked pretty damn good, and it's from the director who did Rare Exports, so definitely, uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, Fix in the chat, well, I've been reading about this one. Do you know what that title means? Oh, never mind, you do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, next up, from 20th, 20th Digital Studio, it still throws my mind that it's not 20th Century Fox, and Hulu Originals, the psychological thriller Clock will begin streaming exclusively on Hulu today. In the film, a woman enrolls in a clinical trial to try and fix her seemingly broken biological clock after friends, family, and societal pressures, um, society pressures her to have children. Uh, Di Diana Agro leads as Ella, with Jay Alley as her husband. Melora Hardin um, also stars in the film as the pioneering doctor managing Ella's treatment. Uh, Clock was written and directed by Alexis Jack Now, who previously helmed short films Clock and Costume Change for the first season of 20th Century Digital's or 20th Digital Studios' Bite Size Halloween. Both shorts were filmed under heavy COVID-19 restrictions in 2020 for the first season of uh, Bite Size Halloween. Okay. Doesn't really give us too much in that blurb, which is fine. But, okay, it'd be interesting to see what the horror elements are in that one. Ah, uh, thanks, Fran. Posted, uh, just posted trailers for The Tank and Black Demon in the Discord. Nice work. Uh, next up, what's the price you pay to bring back the person you love? Directed by Thomas Marchese, the next original horror movie from Shudder is titled From Black, and it was streamed exclusively today. Oh, shit. That might be an after-show watch. Not just watch party, because we can't watch party. Things that aren't on Prime. But I'll have to add that to my list to check out. Finally, so we've got a few films coming up on Shudder from the looks of it that uh, are going to grab my attention. Uh, Anna Camp, who's from the Pitch Perfect franchise and True Blood, stars alongside Jennifer LeFleur, um, John Ailes, Travis Hammer, and Richie Montgomery. In the film, a young mother, crushed by guilt after the disappearance of her young son five years previously, is presented with a bizarre offer to learn the truth and set things right. But how far is she willing to go, and is she willing to pay the terrifying price for a chance to hold her boy again? We've had a couple of um, <clears throat> of films on Shudder in the last year. I remember reviewing one, actually. I can't, I can't remember the title, but it was one set in, like, Finland or, or Iceland with a similar thing where 
these kids had twins and one of the one of the twins died in a car crash and the mother was seeing the other twin and it was like you know is there something supernatural going on is it mental illness um and it was it was mental illness i believe in that so i wonder if we'll get that kind of route because i've talked before that i'm not a massive fan of psychological thrillers when the whole prospect turns out like oh it was all in their head I know that's part of the whole psychological thriller um, trope. It's not really for me. It's one of those kind of twists that I know a lot of people love, and so there's no shame on people if that's that's um, that's their bag. Um, but yeah, for me, it, it, it's not really for me. It always just seems a bit like, eh, okay, fine. Um, on the small screen this week, the Boulay Brothers Halfway to Halloween TV special. So if you're into the Boulay Brothers, which I think is like a horror drag race, uh, Love and Death on HBO Max, Sweet Tooth Season 2. I've not watched Sweet Tooth. I did. I have read one of the graphic novels, and it was decent. Uh, and Fatal Attraction is on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, there's a TV series of Fatal Attraction, and there's also a TV series of True Lies. So we're getting a TV series of old films coming out. Okay, fine. I don't even think I've seen Fatal Attraction. Not my sort of thing. Next up, let's move on to just some general horror news there's some things which i think we could probably skip past actually uh well we'll jump onto this one vampiric pulp graphic adventure game varney lake is out today on pc and consoles get ready for more pulpy graphic adventure gaming from lcb game studio and publisher chorus worldwide games as the follow-up to last year's mothman 1966 in varney lake is out now unlike the previous game instead of diving into cryptids Barney Lake deals with something a little more grounded in vampires. Uh, so it very much looks like a, a pixel art type uh, retro graphic-esque game. You're solving puzzles, uh, meeting neighbouring vampires. Um, yeah, it's out now on Steam, PS4, PS5, Xbox Series, Xbox One and Switch. There is a trailer. I'll just mute it. Uh, it's a text adventure and you play solitaire at one point. Not for me be honest with that next up you're not me christmas set thriller acquired for theatrical release you're not me the feature debut of directors um moses romero and marissa crespo has been acquired for worldwide theatrical distribution by global screen the christmas set thriller is described as a dark elevated genre thriller with elements of satire focusing on two of the filmmakers obsessions family relationships and social differences in the film, Etana returns home for Christmas for the first time in three years to find that her parents have replaced her with an unknown woman. She is her own age, sleeping in her bed, wearing her clothes, living in her house, and threatened by her parents as if she were their... and treated, not threatened, <laughs> very different meanings, and treated by her parents as if she were their daughter. From that moment on, torn by jealousy, suspicion, and misunderstanding, Aitana tries to find out what is happening and who the intruder is that has taken her place in the family, until she discovers an unexpected and disturbing truth that is darker and way bloodier than she would have ever thought possible. You're Not Me stars Rosie Tapias and George Motos. Sounds kind of interesting. I do quite like the um <clears throat> those scenarios, which again, seems like maybe it's a bit of a contradiction. It does sort of fall into the trapping of psychological um based sort of thriller or horror where <clears throat> someone's been replaced or someone's gone missing but no one no one else you know there's that film a few years ago kurt russell breakdown 
man's wife goes missing and everyone's like no we didn't see you with a woman we didn't see you you came here alone i i find if it comes from the outset that that's part of the story fine it's when it's the whole as i said earlier when it's the whole um oh it was in their head all along twist that's not for me this sounds kind of interesting so that's you're not me i'd imagine we probably wouldn't see it till the latter half of the year based on the fact that it's set around christmas you certainly wouldn't get a christmas based horror film being released in the summer i wouldn't have thought um i'll do a quick little headline here we won't go into the details of it but rogue like action game vampire survivors which i've looked at it doesn't look like my sort of game but it's got rave reviews um has inked a deal to create an animated television series Another one of those you didn't see this coming items, developer Ponkles hit Roguelike Vampire Survivors, the latest video game to get a television adaptation. Los Angeles-based Story Kitchen is teaming up with Ponkle founder Luca Galante to adapt Vampire Survivors into a premium animated television series. I imagine that might be in the vein of um, Castlevania, which I know a lot of people love. I have seen series one. I enjoyed it for the most part. It just didn't really hook me. It just didn't really <clears throat> sink its teeth in, pardon the pun, um, to, you know, maintain my attention, to really get me hooked into the story. Um, but yeah, so that's interesting. Interesting. Now, I did catch the teaser for this earlier on. It caught my attention because it had Peacock in the title and also PlayStation. So I thought, what's this? What a Peacock doing with PlayStation property? Peacock's Twisted Metal television series is roaring to life this summer, and the streaming service has debuted the official Season 1 teaser trailer, as promised this afternoon. Uh, It premieres on July 27th. Peacock's high-octane action comedy series, series starring Anthony Mackie follows a motor-mouthed outsider who has offered a chance at a better life, but only if he can successfully deliver a mysterious package across a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Will Arnett will be voicing Sweet Tooth in Peacock's Twisted Metal television series, with AEW superstar Samoa Joe physically embodying the iconic character. That's pretty cool. Uh, Nev Campbell has been cast as Raven, with Stephanie Beatrice, Thomas Hayden Church, Mike Mitchell, Taj Vaughns, and Lou Beatty Jr. also starring in the video game adaptation. The original take for the live-action series comes courtesy of Red Reese and Paul Wernick, the duo behind Zombieland and the Deadpool movie. Michael Jonathan Smith of Cobra Kai is on board to write and showrun the Twisted Metal series. Additionally, Will Arnett and Mark Foreman are executive producing. The first Twisted Metal game was released in 1995, developed by Singletrack and published by Sony for the PlayStation. The original game spawned many follow-ups and spin-offs, with a movie adaptation at one point in the works from the director of Crank and Ghost Rider. The project never came to be, and a TV adaptation has been in development for the past few years. Yeah, I mean, it's only a short teaser. It doesn't really give too much away, but I think it could be pretty interesting. could be pretty good. I, I, I think I've played one of the Twisted Metal games back in the day. I never had a huge affinity for car-based games. Um, I kind of thought it'd be good better if you could get out the car and walk around, but I guess that's the whole sort of point of it. But it was fun. It was fun enough. It was kind of similar to, I guess, Carmageddon. Would be, would be something um, slightly similar, I, I guess. Um, it's a very good cast. I mean, Anthony Mackie is always entertaining from what I've seen him in. Will Arnett voicing Sweet Tooth seems brilliant. And Samoa Joe, um, looking like a hulking badass in this, as he does in wrestling. So that is very cool. And Nev Campbell's in it. It's Raven. So this is, this looks like it could be a pretty fun property. Um, the trailer kind of gave me the vibes of, um, there was the series on sci-fi. 
which had the guy who's in the Reacher TV series. Oh, his name escapes me now, but he used to be in um, Blue Mountain State as well. Um, and that was called Blood Drive, and that was such a fun show. It, it only got one series before it got cancelled, but it really had that grindhouse-type feel with a bit of money behind it and in a modern a modern sort of look, but set in a post-apocalyptic world where, you know, the TV shows and game shows and violence is all... You know, just fitting in that mould, that uh, that that style. I really enjoyed it. So, Blood Drive vibes coming from Twisted Metal. I'm here for it. Uh, next up, couple a couple of little bits left. Uh, music news. Rob Zombie presents White Zombie um, official soundtrack vinyl with Waxworks Records, an ongoing classic horror collaboration. In a perfect matchup, Rob Zombie and Waxworks Records have partnered to release an exclusive curated line of classic horror movie soundtracks. Up first is, fittingly, the original motion picture soundtrack for the 1932 White Zombie. Um, Rob Zombie Presents will feature several never-before-released film soundtracks personally selected by the singer, songwriter, and filmmaker. I've always been a huge fan of movie soundtracks, so I jumped at the opportunity to work with Waxwork on this project, Zombie said. I can't wait to release these albums. So many of these films are greatly underappreciated and they all contain such great music. So, to be able to release these Dulox packages is a dream come true. You can order your copy of uh, White Zombie and Waxworks Records now. Bella Lugosi starred in the 1932 classic horror feature. Yeah, I've seen White Zombie. <clears throat> that is one of those, like, 1930s black and white films that wasn't for me. Um, didn't really strike any sort of chords for me but i mean it's a classic in in the uh in the history of horror so if you are into that uh that era certainly worth checking out it didn't hit the notes of something like you know expressionist german cinema you know like uh metropolis which isn't horror um or dr caligari's uh the dust cabinet of dr caligari um, Frank in the chat, Alan Richson, yes, that's the guy who was in uh, Blood Drive and uh, and Reacher. Reacher was brilliant, I thought. Very good series. Um, and well, we don't need to do that last bit of news because we've kind of already covered that. Uh, but lastly, first look at Netflix's untitled shark attack horror movie. Here you go. Here's another one, Vix, um, from director Xavier Gens. French filmmaker Xavier Gens, who did Frontiers, which is brutal, and Cold Skin, which we've watched on a watch party before, so I did not know that the Frontiers director also did Cold Skin. Um, and Cold Skin was actually surprisingly... I say surprisingly because I didn't know anything about it. It was actually really, really quite um, quite good. Um, he is back with a shark attack movie for Netflix, and Variety shares the first look today with early footage. The film doesn't yet have a title, but we do know it's set in Paris. It's said to be an ambitious, elevated genre film, and Variety notes that it will launch on Netflix in 2024. Set in the summer of 2024, the film unfolds in Paris, which is hosting the World Triathlon Championships on the Seine, on the Seine I don't know how you pronounce that, for the first time. Sophia, a brilliant scientist, learns from Mika, a young environmental activist, that a large shark is swimming deep in the river. To avoid a bloodbath at the heart of the city, they have no choice but to join forces with Adil, the Seine, I don't know how you pronounce it, river police commander. Um, Berenice Bejo of The Artist and Nassim Lyles of Overdose Star. There you have it. There is your horror news for the week. Now, I have to use my soundboard in a little while. If you hang up on me again, I'll cut you like a fish, understand? 
And you know what? Throwing it out for the uh, the old the old fans of, uh, and hopefully this works. I haven't used this button in a while. That was the news. It says it runs on for another twenty eight minutes and forty five seconds. There we go. Stop that. There, there's an old school throwout for you. That was the news. I won't use that every time because that, that would just be copyright infringement. <laughs> uh, so, we're now going to get onto the reviews, and I do have review music. I feel I put far too much whiskey in that. I don't normally drink spirits at all. But I figured if I was going to drink a Bud Light, it will make me burp straight away, and I, I will honestly save that. Well, not save that. I'll put that off until doing the watch party because no one wants to hear that. Least of all me who's doing it. Um, now I need to manage my two screens. This is where I could do with a third screen. Well, this is where I should really set out my my monitors properly before going on the air. Apologies, very unprofessional. We're now getting to the reviews. Now, we were going to have four reviews. I ran out of time on one. So we've got three, which is a jump up from previous weeks. So I think that's a pat on my back. I'm going to pat myself on the back. So we're going to go in release order. We're going to go for an older film. Now, I've got to give a shout out to uh, Matt Wyatt, I believe. Let me just check the Discord. Let me just check the Discord. Let me just check. Yes, Matt Wyatt in the Discord. I know he's a regular podcast listener. Um, <clears throat> had noticed that I'd mentioned not seeing the 1988 film of The Blob, the remake. It's one of those films that's kind of been on my radar because I've seen little clips of it in great horror moments or underappreciated horror films. And for whatever reason... It never really, it's not on any streaming platforms in the UK that I'm aware of. Um, and it doesn't, you know, if you go on Amazon, there's no primable copy. There's not like a UK BBFC certified DVD or, or Blu-ray, and it's not available to watch on streaming. Fortunately, Matt Wyatt had said, I know you mentioned not having seen this film, wanting to see this film. It is available on Prime currently. You can get a European copy, a French copy, and it will play on UK UK players, because I don't have a multi-region player, because consoles are still region-locked in this day and age. Why? I don't know. So for like £6.99, which is a bargain, I picked up um, The Blob, which arrived today. I mean, it said it was due for arrival between like the 5th and the 14th of May, so props to the seller of this. Um, the Blob is a 1988 American science fiction horror film, co-written and directed by Chuck Russell, who horror fans may know wrote and directed... Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. This is a remake of the 1958 film of the same name. It stars Shawnee Smith, Kevin Dillon, Donovan Leach, Jeffrey DeMunn, Paul McCrane, Art Lafleur, Robert Axelrod, Joe Seneca, Del Close, and Candy Clark. The film follows an acidic, amoeba-like organism that crashes down to Earth in a military satellite which devours and devolves and dissolves sorry, anything in its path as it grows. Um, it's the third film in the, the Blob film series. Uh, this, So I guess part of the reason this maybe hasn't been widely available in the UK is the film was a box office bomb, unfortunately. 
Um, oh, don't worry. Oh, just sorry. Just seeing the, the chat. We've got the Gruff in the chat. Good evening. Sorry I'm late. Something came up. Uh, no, no worries at all, Gruff. I hope you're good, dude. Thank you for coming along. Uh, it's always appreciated. But I hope, first and foremost, that you are well, my friend. Uh, we're just talking about the blob um, for the first of this evening's review. So you've only missed the news. It's all good. Um, this was released with a budget of $10 million, and over time it made a box office of 8.2, so it did not recoup its budget, which is a shame. Um, and I guess, I wonder if part of that was because there isn't a big name star at this time attached to the film. Um, Kevin Dillon has gone on to have some known, renown. I mean, he's more known for, I think it's his brother. Uh, is it he related to Matt Dillon? Personal life. Is he not actually related to him? Do they just literally have, both have the same surname? Oh no, brother Matt Dillon is his brother. Matt Dillon is probably more widely known. Uh, but Kevin Dillon, if you've ever seen Entourage, he's in that. I've only seen a couple of seasons of it. It's alright, a bit pointless. Uh, Shawnee Smith fans will know from the, screen, uh, the Saw series, I should say. She's in the first and the second... Maybe the third. I've not actually seen that many of the sequels because I don't really... Outside the first two, I kind of got turned off of it after the third or the fourth one. But Shawnee Smith is more commonly known these days from uh, from the Saw film series. And I guess at the time of its release, 1988, uh, the 80s... I don't know, it's late 80s, so Alien Invasion Horror should have been a bit more in vogue than than the early 80s i'm not sure i'm not sure why this uh this bombed it's a bit of a shame but it's got a killer soundtrack um i don't know who did the music on it michael haining did the, did the music and a me so basically a meteorite crashes uh, near arborville california an elderly vagabond discovers it um within a sphere a massive slime mold like substance that adheres to his hand um and this is kind of really the start of this thing spreading we see here that it's uh, very dissolving it dissolves out his hand along with all of his organs and we see that it can climb on walls and drop down onto people one of the, one of the teenagers in the hospital seems like a nice kid unfortunately it falls on him and we get one of the first of many 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 great vfx moments when we see that the blob has covered the guy other than his arm which when it's extended out to be for Shawnee Smith to grab to try and help him, it dissolves off. And the effects in this film, as you may see if you're watching live, uh, I've got the artwork on uh, on the front of um, of this evening's stream. The effects in this are great. There's a couple of moments near the end where they're going quite big. The, the blob has grown massive, as it naturally will. And some moments look a little bit a little bit silly. But you know, I mean. The, the budget for a film of this scope wasn't massive by any means. But on the whole, the close-up effects, like the dissolving, there's a little kid that gets pulled into this water when they're trying to escape through a sewer. And uh, when he emerges, half of, basically his face is like looks like an old man. It's all falling away and, uh, and dissolving away. And uh, I think one of the most disturbing moments is a woman gets trapped in a phone booth. And she's trying to hold the door closed with her foot and the, the, the blob is surrounding the phone booth and it's starting to creep through underneath the door and and then basically just explodes inwards. And uh, she's trying to call this. She's calling the sheriff station and they said, said that the sheriff has already headed down to the diner, which is where she's at. And she sees in the blob the, the dissolving sheriff. You see his badge 
Uh, half his face is really starting to fall away. It's it's disgusting. Um, in the chat, we've got uh, Graf says, I love this movie as a kid. I thought it was really gory and cool, but I haven't seen it for over 20 years, probably much longer. Is this the film where it's down a sink and a guy tries unblocking it with a plunger? It pulls him down the sink or something. That's the one. That's the kill before the phone booth. It, gra it, jump it leaps up through the sink, grabs his head, pulls him down so his legs are sticking out, pulls him through. There's another moment, which is one of those sort of kills that... It's a style of kill you don't see all that often, but it always makes me go, ooh. And that is near the end. The um, Everyone's kind of headed into the town centre, uh, the town hall. It's being surrounded. They're trying to barricade the doors and to keep the blob out. And one of the sheriffs, or sheriff deputies, who's been a bit of a dick throughout the film, but he's now becoming all right, he gets, he's trying to push over a bookcase to you know put some pressure against the door. And the blob shoots through one of the um, bookshelves, grabs him around the waist, and pulls him, pulling him in so his back breaks backwards. It's, it's one of those things. It's kind of similar to an early kill in Freddy vs. Jason when Jason goes in um, to the boyfriend led on the, bled, the bed, stabbing him with a machete in the back before grabbing the bed and folding it in half. One of those things where it's just like the body shouldn't bend like that. Ooh, don't like it. Um, so what do I think of this film? It's a, a creature feature, creature from outer space, although it's not technically from outer space, which is a nice little uh, differentiation when we find out the story behind what the blob is. Um, so it's it's quite interesting what they've gone for. They've gone for something very different here, and uh, there's a focus on paranoia, nihilism, um, you know, tin hat theories, things like that. The military out to get us, that sort of thing. It, it's pretty interesting in that regard. I will say, for a film that is ninety-five minutes, there are moments with pacing issues. Now that could be, um, because we we get the first sort of attack or first interaction with the alien pretty early on. I think within the first five to ten minutes or so. So maybe that's part of it. But there does seem to be a couple of pacing issues. Not not massive, not so much that it's a detractor or it puts me off the film at all. But there are lulls in 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 the moment. And there's not like there's something to kind of fill those those lulls. But that being said, it's a real throwback film. And I say throwback, I mean this was nineteen eighty eight, so it's not like it's a recent throwback, but it's a throwback to I guess the, the films from the era before that it's kind of set in uh, set, you know, based on the fifties but with a 80s horror gore sensibility. The effects in this, I think, for the most part, are really, really good. Um, and it's a fun film. And the, the the music that comes in on the end credits, I didn't stick around to see who uh, performed the particular songs on the soundtrack, but there's a, a really cool 80s-esque song that comes in when the credits start a-rolling. So really, it's a fun film. It's not an excellent film. I think it probably could have done with... Um, a big name in it um and again that, that's think look at things retrospectively i mean a lot of the newer horror these days that i look out for doesn't have big names in them but i think they're also the ones which are probably gonna kind of fly under the radar maybe get a niche a niche market but in today's model things going online unless you've got some good marketing behind you you will more often than not kind of fly under the radar which is a which is a shame um 
But I'm, you know, generally the performances are pretty good. Kevin Dillon um, is a decent, uh, a decent front man in this, and Shawnee Smith does a great performance. You know, she is cool. Uh, I'm going to give it a six point five out of ten. I definitely think it's worth your time. It's not a bad film by any by any means. Um, I think that they probably could have maybe shaved a little bit of time off it, even though it's you know only ninety five minutes long. Um, just some pacing issues, I think. Just a, just a couple of pacing issues around the the middle the middle mark of the film. Um, Fran in the chat I've just seen in regards to Shawnee Smith uh, said she was in one, two, and three, six, and the upcoming Saw X. So I can't remember what happens with her character. Um, because I'm really thrown out with the whole term, uh, the whole timeline of the films. Um, you know, I remember seeing Saw, the final Saw, whichever one it was. One of the Saw films, the one before the Book of Saw, Spiral, the Book of Saw. And the whole thing of that being that it was kind of like a prequel or something. I don't know. I'm really out of the loop on the Saw timeline. I think it's because the first two, the first one especially, I think was very good. But from the third one onwards, the third one is just a nasty film. It just literally became that the focal point was crazy ways to torture people. Um, it seemed to be starting to take a bit of less focus off the characters in their plight and instead putting characters in these moments just to focus on how they die and more gruesome ways to die. And I don't think that was really the focus of the first film. It had those moments in it, but that wasn't the main focus of the story. You know, you had your central characters. Again, as we kind of say on this show, like what you like, don't like what you don't like. So I'm never going to say, oh, these are crap, because they have fans. They're clearly successful. Um, but it's not a series that's for me. I, I will probably try and check them out. But I definitely know that there's like five, five and six I don't think I've seen. I've possibly seen four, but I, I do. I think I may have seen four, but I definitely know that the third one was the one. I think it's when I saw it in the cinema. There's the lad who is in the machine that's turning around his arms and his legs and breaking all his bones individually. It was that moment I was just like, man, this torture porn genre. And I think it was around that time I then also saw Hostel 2 in the cinema and I just thought, this isn't this this isn't uh for me this isn't my my type of horror um but you know there's different strokes for different folks and as fran says in the chat see i enjoy this franchise it has some clunkers though yeah there's there's only a handful of franchises really that i think have got solid entries throughout um but yeah i mean like i say they're very successful um and i feel i i sort of enjoyed spiral book of saw for the most part but more so the first half i think the second half when it started getting more into the mythology i i, I started losing my interest on on that personally so we'll now move on to one that i was very surprised to see was on prime and when i say on prime more specifically freebie and my surprise was heightened even more when i saw that this was distributed by mgm who are quite a world-renowned distributor, or they were. They're now owned by Amazon, so I don't, know, I don't know if that's a bad thing, but they fall under the Amazon banner now. And I don't know what Freevee's connection is with Amazon, but I know predominantly I see Freevee via Amazon, and it used to be called IMDb TV. Anyway, I'm very surprised to see the Poughkeepsie tapes on there. So if you haven't heard of the Poughkeepsie Tapes, it's something that's been on my radar for a little while, and it's one of those sort of films where I thought, I'm not really interested in watching it. I've read up on it, 
doesn't seem like it's for me in terms of falling into that niche element of the the horror genre of it's disturbing younger me would have lapped that shit up older me goes is there a narrative i don't mind disturbing films i mean christ if there's a film that i can watch and leaves me freaked out that's awesome but i want to have a good story there i want there to be a character or characters for me to root for uh you know a narrative where i'm wanting to see what happens next and that the ideas that i got off the poughkeepsie tapes was oh it's just got some really dis disturbing moments and it's really violent and gory so for me i kind of thought oh, i've got no interest in watching that but it had some notoriety because there were delays to its release there were issues with it coming out i think it got don't know if necessarily banned but it had a troubled release history um i'll just kind of go through this briefly so it's a 2007 american pseudo documentary horror film written and directed by john eric dowdell uh it's about the murders of a serial killer in poughkeepsie new york told through interviews and footage from a cache of the killer's snuff films it premiered at the 2007 tribeca film festival but had a troubled release history it was originally slated for the theatrical release by mgm in february 2008 but was removed from the release schedule it had a brief vod release in 2014 but remained unavailable on home media in 2017 the film was released and remastered on dvd and blu-ray by scream factory via the newly revived orion pictures um so i went into this with fairly low expectations but i thought it's it's available on on freebie which to be fair freebie as we've talked before on watch parties and on the stream before they do seem to be getting some very interesting releases going on there and some kind of newer films so bearing in mind that the only negative or pullback is there are trailers but for a film like this i think there was maybe three ad breaks and the ad breaks weren't that long so really grand scheme of things the fact that you're not paying a monthly subscription for it i think is fair um so to get some films on there i mean they've got like the the ginger snaps films they've got loads oh, christ they want the uh they've got the it documentary based you know about the 1990 miniseries if you've used you know streaming platforms i implore you at some point to have a look at freebie uh for their horror section because they've got some interesting stuff on there it's definitely worth checking out for sure i would say so let's start with this film um I'll, I'll read i'll start the blurb on 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 uh wikipedia to begin with when police raid a house in poughkeepsie new york they discover over 800 videotapes shot by serial killer edward carver which present a visual record of his murders filmed in full from the point of view um of abduction to the post-mortem mutilation of the victim despite the volume of evidence carver is careful not to be shown on film unless fully disguised leading to police and law enforcement beginning an investigation into his whereabouts and the whereabouts of his victims um sorry i've just noticed there's a post-credit scene which i really didn't even notice um post-credit scene shows a brutalized woman being filmed by carver who threatens to kill her the next time she blinks when she does he laughs and screen cuts the darkness okay right okay fine um anyway so 
it's one of those pseudo documentaries in that we have moments of talking heads, police investigators, investigators, profilers, uh, family members of the victims. And we also see in this big hall all of the lines of these videotapes. And it's massive. It's quite a visual spectacle. I mean, when you see that front cover artwork that's on screen now, yeah, it, it is an impressive looking cache of uh, cachet of, um, of videotapes. Um, just in terms of the production quality, you know, providing all of these these cassette tapes. And they talk about the investigation. Now, these Talking Heads segments do range in quality depending on the actors provided. I mean, this isn't a huge budget film. I don't know what the actual physical budget was for this film. And then we get the, the videotapes themselves. Now, this isn't a gory film, really. There's only, I think, two deaths that you see on screen. So in terms of that element you don't really get much gore. I think there's a throat slit and then there's a a grisly sort of death, which isn't actually that bloody, but it's just disturbing more so how it's done. Um, but in terms of the disturbing outset, the videotapes are all from the killer's perspective. We don't really see the killer other than when he's masked, wearing these like hook-nosed masks and dressed up quite creepily. Um, but the first person that he kills, and thankfully the death isn't on screen, is an eight-year-old girl. Now, in film, it's kind of one of those um, unwritten rules of you don't, you know, you don't hurt a kid. For good reason, obviously. It's, it's just like, oh, come on. Obviously, it does happen, but it's more often not off screen. And this, it does occur off screen, technically. But we do still have this interaction where he's gone up to this kid and she's like, I can't talk to strangers. And he's like, you're not going to be rude to me, are you? I'm, I'm just being nice. And then he is implied he clubs her before running off. And you see moments of the aftermath and such. There's also a moment when he hitchhikes with a couple. Um, and we find later on that he's cut the head off the guy and he has sewn the head into the torso the decapitated woman things like that where it's just like it's it's disturbing in terms of the recounting what's occurred and the little snapshots of well here's the the body that's found things like that um <coughs> he kidnaps another woman after killing her boyfriend and keeps her hostage basically indoctrinating her um that's quite sad um as it goes throughout the story and i won't go into all the moments of the story as a particular moment, if you want to see disturbing scenes in, in, in film and whatnot, it probably have a segment from this, which is where there's a woman, a uh, prostitute that he's, um, he's kidnapped, and the camera's very close up on her face, and what looks like a strange being is walking in on all fours, but it's him, but he's wearing a mask, but he's also got another mask on top of his head, so it looks like it's this thing is facing forwards, but it's just him on all fours, and then it appears next to her, and looks up to show that it's got the hook-nosed mask that he's always been wearing. But he lifts his hand up, and he's got these two-pronged, like, just, like, kind of needle-type things coming off his fingers that he stabs into her neck. It's quite gruesome, but like I say, it's not overtly gory. It's more just the implication, the setup, um, the these moments in the found-footage films. And... I guess the other thing that I knew going into this, which was one of those things that I just think, oh, fuck's sake, it's like why I don't really like watching unexplained mysteries or when you watch a true crime documentary and it's open-ended because it's not been solved. It's annoying. And 
yeah, he, he doesn't get caught. Spoiler alert. But this film is, like, really fucking old, so... 16 years old now. Um, it's not as bad as I was anticipating. It's not a good film. It's not good... Let's say that. It's... There's interesting elements to this. It is sort of following the design of something like, say, The Last Broadcast, in terms of it being this pseudo-documentary. That is fairly interesting. That is a, uh, a style that I do find um, quite engaging. But like I say, the acting is, is kind of choppy at times. You know, it's, it doesn't necessarily completely hit it out the park. I'll just say it like that. But it has got some interest there. I would say if you're intrigued, then give it a watch. Certainly. But I wouldn't necessarily say I can recommend it massively, because it is it is just a fairly nasty film. Um, but I will applaud that the fact that most of the nastiness is implied. It's not something like I mean, I was more interested to watch this than something like Megan is Missing. I've heard about Megan is Missing, and that just seems like it's just nasty. And nasty sounds like I'm being a bit of a pussy when it comes to horror. I'm not at all. But I think for me, as I've matured, I need a good narrative. I need something there. And I don't necessarily need a happy ending. But if a film is just awfulness, 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 awfulness and we get to the end, and then there's no no repercussion or anything, it's just awfulness. That's just a draining experience. That's not something I really personally want to spend an hour and a half doing. Um, it's, it, it's, it's got to serve a purpose. And whether, it's, whether that's the point when you see the killer get their comeuppance, or someone fights back, you know, or you have those moments... Then yeah, it can work if you've been piled on and piled on, and then they're getting a fight back. Those are the moments will get you going. Fuck yes, come on! But this is obviously taking the documentarian type route, so I get that. It's you know, it's it's based in in real life, not not based on real life. But you're not always going to get that, and you're not always going to catch the killer. I, I I get that. But from a narrative perspective, and from a film viewer's perspective, it's it's not ideal. Um. And to kind of go into semi-spoilers here, when they do find the cache of videotapes, they also find, barely still alive, but alive, the woman who had been captured and indoctrinated and, and forced to refer to herself as a possession, as a slave, forced to kill uh, one of the prostitutes to show that she's um, loyal. She gets found, and there's no saving her. She's fully just like, what do you want me to say? What, I'm done, I'm, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. You know, she only can relieve, she can only feel alive by causing herself pain. And you see, she scratches her head with the stump where her hand was, which is implying she cut her own hand off. And she wanted to be saved. She was in love with the mask, things like that. And it's just like, oh man, it's not even a happy ending. I mean, I get it. She's been gone for X amount of time so long, but fucking hell. It's a bit of a draining experience, but I'm going to give it a five out of 10. I don't think it's necessarily bad. Um, and like I say, it's not gory, really. It's more implied violence. And it does have some disturbing imagery. For sure. 
and I get that's what it's going for, and if that's your thing, cool. Um, unsettling at times, certainly. It's not really ever boring, so I'll give it that, in, in terms of the pacing of the story and the route of this psychotic killer's path. And, I mean, you don't need to look too far outside um, to, to reality to see certain aspects of this could be true. I mean, fucking hell, just look into the, 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 some of the details of the Jeffrey Dahmer case some of the extent of what he did to his victims to know that it's not out of the realms of possibility for someone to to go on such a such a rampage to varying degrees um so yeah, it's, a, it's a tough watch but if you are inclined to um to give it a go then i would say give it a go and see what you think and i'll be interested to hear you know Check me on, on, on Twitter at Tezius, T-E-Z-Z-I-U-S, or at Ministry underscore Horror. Let me know your thoughts uh, if you do watch the Poughkeepsie tapes or if you've seen it before. Um, so that is my review of that. Now that brings us to our final review before we move on to our main discussion topic for the night. And that is the brand new film, the new entry in the Evil Dead franchise, Evil Dead Rise, Mummy Loves You to Death. That's not a subtitle. Uh, let's just quickly look at the chat. See what we've uh, what we've missed out on. Vic's narrative is key. Violence for violence sake is boring in my opinion. Uh, the Gruff agreed, Vix, I can watch loads of horror and violence with no problem, but if there is no narrative, I find it kind of disturbing. Like, did this person just make the film to show violence? Vix, disturbing is exactly the word, Gruff. On that topic, have any of you guys watched the Toy Box Killers movies that came out a few years ago? No. The Toy Box Killers movie. That does not ring a bell. Um, you'll have to, have to send me some information on that one. Not familiar with that. Unless, of course, it's terrible, then I'm not interested. Um... But, uh, okay, yeah, I'm not, not familiar with that one, Vix. So, Evil Dead Rise is a 2023 American supernatural horror film written and directed by Lee Cronin. It is the fifth installment of the Evil Dead series. It stars Lily Sullivan and Alyssa Sutherland. Well, um, yeah, they're not related. Two estranged sisters trying to survive and save their family from deadites. Uh, Morgan Davies, Gabrielle Eccles, and Nell Fisher in her film debut appear in supporting roles. The film's development was preceded by scrapped plans for direct sequels to Evil Dead 2013, An Army of Darkness, and a fourth season of Ash vs. the Evil Dead. By October Sam, October 2019, Sam Raimi announced that a new film was in development, with Rob Tappert producing, Raimi and Bruce Campbell executive producing, and Cronin writing and directing the project. New Line Cinema, the first film's distributor, was announced as a production company involved. Principal photography took place in New Zealand from June to October 2021. The film was originally set to premiere on the streaming service HBO Max, but distributor Warner Bros. Pictures eventually opted to release the film theatrically first after positive test screenings. I mean, that's pretty cool. It was going to be straight to streaming, which I think would have been an oversight, would have, would have been poor. Um, and the fact that this is done doing so well at cinema is is really quite encouraging so it's made for a budget of 15 to 19 million and currently um in the opening week i think it's been um it has done 48.5 million which is very very good very very good um so thoughts on this film i mean christ it was awesome <laughs> 
we get an opening segment which is ve- on this very picturesque lake where there is um a girl hanging out by the water this obnoxious guy who is the boyfriend of her friend flying his drone and being a bit obnoxious and their friend um isn't really feeling that well and they go and check on her and the girl goes and checks on her in the cabin which leads to not niceties but it does lead us to one of the best title credits in film that i've seen in the cinema in a very very long time there's just this moment it's focusing on this lake so visually it's very sort of bright but there's like a kind of a orangey greenish hue like a, a a dark saturation almost to the light and a coming up from behind the lake into the skies the title card it just looks excellent especially seeing it on with a loud surround sound the cinema on the big screen it looks exquisite i really 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 enjoyed that um sorry just seeing the the, the chats the chat here fran's not uh not not seen this um toy box killer movie so vix hasn't seen it because i didn't want to watch it because the true story was so disturbing sorry i've had diet cokes now i've got the burps coming excuse me um but i was equally intrigued what someone with um would do with that i.e whether it would be gratuitous violence or if they would find a real narrative it didn't get good reviews i don't think gruff now i've never seen those films either fran i really wanted an evil dead sequel with mia um, the graph, I must admit, I would have liked to sequel with Mia, but I really enjoyed this film. Very fun and gory um, horror. No real complaints from me. Well, I'm going to sort of um, talk about Mia, I guess, in a moment. So this is a standalone entry, really, in the Evil Dead series. There's no Ash, although we do get a Bruce Campbell voice cameo in, in one moment, which is a very much cover your ears for a moment and you'll miss it uh type type deal um there's no mia in this um but we do we do get some interesting connections i believe there's a bit of a connection to um army of darkness which army of darkness i haven't seen for a, a few years um it is good but it's not one of my favorites i think there's talk in the army of darkness there being three books of the dead and this is one of the books um but we we meet up with um, Ellie, who's a single mother to teenagers Danny and Bridget, and preteen Cassie, in their condemned Los Angeles apartment complex. So it's this massive apartment complex, but it's it used to be a bank, and it was kind of built over um, over a bank. And in terms of uh, connections, I see I see Gruff just entered into the chat. Yeah, it feels like it could be the same universe, but no real connections. I very much feel that this film is in the similar sort of vein as Evil Dead twenty thirteen. The Deadites have a similar sort of appearance. Uh, the 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 visual sort of colours do harken to that, so it does kind of feel like there's a bit of a connection. Um, and Gruff, oh really? I didn't pick up on any Army of Darkness connections. Interesting. Yeah, I think in Army of Darkness they talk about there being three books of the dead or something along those lines. Um, and also Bruce Campbell is one of the people on the recordings who says, like, he makes a comment when this um, this priest is talking about trying to translate one of the books of the dead, or the, what, the book of the dead that they found, and he, he shouts out condemning, the, um, condemning it, which is a nice little Easter egg. Um, we also meet a newly pregnant 
um, the newly pregnant sister, uh, Beth, who finds out she's, she's a guitar tech. She's not really staying in connection with her family. Her sister goes to visit them, and um, the, the husband of, of Ellie is out of the picture. And there's a lot of, you know, communication doesn't seem to have been great between them. But a earthquake occurs in the city, and the earthquake opens up a section in the ground where there is um, a bank vault, because this, like I say, is a condemned building, used to be on a bank or part of a bank. And, uh, and Danny goes in to have a look around it, and bad idea, bad idea. I won't go too much further into that because you can probably get the idea that something's going to occur when something has been found, which is going to unleash something and cause something. But goddamn, we talked about Mia briefly and wanting a a, a new film with Mia potentially. And Mia was a standout, and Mia's performance—the fact that she was both the heroine and, for the large part, the antagonist—I think was absolutely excellent. When she gets possessed taken over by the deadites instantly iconic the visuals of her as a deadite became just part of horror fandom it's kind of like you know more recently i suppose bill skarsgård as pennywise um jigsaw the doll uh, you know things obviously the iconic horror characters is one of those things where kind of similar to the deadite one of the deadites in the first film <clears throat> the visual instantly becomes iconic could they repeat that again in evil dead rise yeah, I think so. Um, Alyssa Sutherland as Mommy, as uh, as the the lead deadite, and that's not necessarily a spoiler because we see it. Um, oh, Billy the puppet, sorry, Fran, uh, not Jigsaw the puppet, um, because we see it in a lot of the the trailer footage and the artwork, of course, on the front. We see her as a deadite. I mean, Christ, it is a tour de force performance. I mean, all the acting in this is, is excellent. Um, it's a very modern family as well, which I think is quite cool. And, um, you know, kind of, it, it, it just, it's, you know, it just it kind of fits in with the, with the modern, modern sensibilities. And um, her performance, when she starts being taken over, and when someone says, like, I want my mummy, and she goes, mummy's for the maggots now, it's just, it's it's so damn good. She is genuinely creepy in this film. Um, a creepy smile, the gruff says. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, on reflection, quite liked Smile, the film. When I first saw it, I thought, it's okay, but it wasn't amazing. On a rewatch, it is good, but for a film that central premises about creepy smiles, more so in line with The Curse, one of my initial things was, it's a good film, it's got good tension, but the smiles... The actual smiles themselves aren't really actually that creepy. There's films with creepier smiles. Case in point, this one. Lily, um, Lily, uh, Alyssa, sorry, Alyssa Sutherland, when she is smiling as Deadite Mommy, so damn creepy. Such a creepy smile, honestly. We've got gore, we've got violence, we've got the cheese grater, which is um, <clears throat> one of the moments in the trailer that made a lot of people squirm. And I've got to say, my initial kind of brief out of the cinema review on Discord was I think this was squirm-inducing bloody fun, something along those lines. Yeah, very much when I was watching this, the sign of a good horror, um, obviously there's various different horror films and, and whatnot, obviously it has to engage you, it has to hook you, maybe make you jump if it's a jump-scare-based horror, and that's no slam on jump-scare films, because, you know, Christ, if it makes you jump, fuck it, that's a good, that's good. 
but this has moments that make you squirm. It has quite a few moments that make you go, oh, fucking hell. I mean, you can't if you can't see me because you listen to this on audio thing, it's like I can't do the, the shudder of the shoulders up and scrunching in the face because you're seeing something that you think, oh, man, that's fucking horrible. I mean, someone at one point starts munching down bits of glass and you can see the glass cutting their throat out as it's going down the throat. It's things like that that are just so creepy. There's a moment when someone almost gets tattooed on the eyeball. Um... And I mean, I think like most people, when you see something slowly getting closer and closer to the eye, it's a no-go, it's a no-thank-you. No-thank-you, muchacho. But this has great sound design in it. Great moments of tension. It never gets dull. It's got some great kills. Um, it's got a great final act. It was just great. Uh, the opening film and the very end of the film, there's, it's kind of like a bit of a wraparound because the opening activities in the film are, happen a day after the majority of the film. And so you may, while you're watching the film, kind of be questioning, well, how is that connected? And you do get the answer to that right at the end of the film, I, I will say. Um, you can maybe argue those moments are a little bit unnecessary because they don't really connect to the main bulk of the story per se, but they do nicely place some of the activity in a cabin in the woods which is one of the central cruxes of the evil dead as as, as a franchise um you know the first second and and the, and the requel all set there so i guess it's a good way to kind of have that connection whilst also transposing the bulk of your narrative into a high-rise apartment um man i had a lot of fun with this film i really enjoyed it I guess if I was to do my on-the-spot categorization of the films, and I will bear in mind that I don't think there's a bad entry in this series, I think it's similar to Scream in that it's just a strong series throughout. And I'm not going to include the TV series in this because I haven't finished watching the TV series. I have to say the TV series, especially Series 2, which is what I'm at currently, just hasn't really hooked me. We've talked about Evil Dead before. I think we did a show about it last year. Um, and the TV series, it's just, you know, Season 1 was alright, it was decent. Series 2 is just kind of dragged, in my opinion. So I've not got Series 3 yet. It's still on Amazon, uh, it's still on Prime, what am I talking about? It's still on Netflix at the moment. So I, I, I think it's leaving Netflix soon. So I do need to, at some point, try and finish it. But yes, Series 2 hasn't connected me. But in terms of the films, I would probably say top film for me is going to be Evil Dead. And I'm going to say Evil Dead 2013 in the second spot. I'm then going to say Evil Dead 2 Dead by Dawn or Dead by Daylight, whichever one it is. And Evil Dead Rise are probably going to be neck and neck. Really? Because I'd maybe put Evil Dead Rise alongside, actually. Okay, Evil Dead 1, top. Evil Dead 2013 and Evil Dead Rise are both second, I'm going to say. Evil Dead 2, which used to be my favourite, but I think it does drag, to be honest. On rewatches, on re I have found Evil Dead 2 drags a bit, but it used to be my favourite because it's the first one I ever saw. Evil Dead 2, then underneath that, and then Army of Darkness underneath that. I like Army of Darkness, but it is more action, dark comedy focused, um, as opposed to horror. It's not bad at all, but it's it's not my favourite in the franchise. So like I say, it's not bottom as in it's crap, it's just I prefer the other ones above it. So for the score for this, 
Um, easy. Nine out of ten. Thoroughly enjoy it. If you like the Evil Dead films, especially if you liked Evil Dead 2013, give Evil Dead Rise a watch. Um, yeah. Just check it out. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Evil Dead Rise. So, that's now going to take us to our featured presentation. <laughs> And we are taking a trip. Christ, we've been going almost an hour and a half. Fucking hell. Um, we're now going to take a trip to the outer reaches of space. Specifically the moon LV-426. Because, my friends, ghouls and fiends, we're going to be talking about the Xenomorph. And we're going to be talking about the Alien film series. So, when I think of the Xenomorph, and my introduction to the Alien films, it comes back to one of my earliest memories of horror and the attraction that I had to the horror genre. So I've talked about the first horror film I ever saw on TV, proper horror film, would have been Halloween and the, the original 1978 film and seeing the Mark Commode introduction on BBC Two, watching the film and just being encapsulated by the music, the, uh, the acting, the sense of dread in it. I've talked before on the Stephen King episode about what drew me initially to Stephen King, and that was my local, what was once called an M&W's convenience store. It then became One Stop. I think it was something in between. And then eventually became Tesco Express, you know, part of the big the machine. They had a VHS rental section. We could rent a film out for like £2 for a week. And it was, you know, slightly closer to us than Blockbuster. I mean, Blockbuster was only in town. This one was a five-minute walk down the street. And I would often go there and I would look and I, I remember seeing the artwork for Army of Darkness and thinking, wow, is that like a horror-based Conan film? Because it's got this like ripped dude with his arms up on the front cover and he's got a chainsaw arm. Looked really cool with an army of dead people at the bottom. But it's one of those films where the artwork made it look cooler um, than, than the film. The film's obviously got very much its tongue-in-cheek. Um, seeing the front cover of like maybe Terminator 2 probably seeing the front cover for the VHS of the 1990 It miniseries. That was what initially drew me to Stephen King, so I thought, wow, that's a horrible-looking clown. Is this a clown horror film? And then I found the book, and then I tried reading the book, and it's not an ideal film, an ideal book to try and read when you're like eight years old. Um, but I return to the book much later, and it is excellent, albeit one chapter, which is just, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that chapter. But one of the other VHS covers that drew my attention was aliens it's the front cover all you can see is it's 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 black and you've got the outline of this creepy kind of side of this alien face with goop dripping down its mouth and i remember just looking at that looking on the back cover and i think on the back cover you had the image of the queen which is still my favorite xenomorph of all time and a friend of mine called harrison his mother rented it for for him to watch and I came around to watch it and around that sort of time which I guess must have been 97 maybe 98 I think 97 we watched that and a week later the VHS release uh was available for Alien Resurrection oh god my second alien film being Alien Resurrection we'll talk about that a bit more later on but I just found it incredible the design of these creatures the uh, 
tension in space, the design, everything. So when I think sci-fi, my head, and obviously it's sci-fi horror, but my head automatically goes to things like Xenomorphs, Alien, um, The Thing, mostly based on Earth, uh, Event Horizon, you know, that's that's the, the, the sci-fi that really intrigues me. Yeah, it could just be because it's horror-based, but, um, you know, I've never really got into Star Trek, Star Wars. You know, they're fine. The things that I've seen of those are fine, but they don't engage me the way that uh, a tense, uh, tension-filled horror adventure does. So, the Xenomorph, also known as Xenomorph XX121, or... Internasivius raptus, or simply the xenomorph, is a fictional endoparasitoid extraterrestrial species that serves as the title antagonist of the Alien film series, making its debut in the film Alien in 1979. Um, the concept for the film, so the script for the 1979 uh, Alien was initially drafted by Dan O'Bannon and uh, Ronald Schissett. Dan O'Bannon drafted an opening which the crew of a mining ship sent to investigate a mysterious message on an alien planet. Um, he eventually settled on the threat being an alien creature, however he could not conceive of an interesting way for it to get onto the ship. Inspired after waking from a dream, Schissett said, I have an idea. The monster screws one of them planting its egg in his body and then bursting out of his chest. Both realised the idea had never been done before and it subsequently became the core of the film. This is a movie about alien interspecies rape, O'Bannon said in the documentary Alien Evolution. That's scary because it hits all of our buttons. O'Bannon felt the symbolism of homosexual oral rape was an effective means of discomforting male viewers. Uh, the title of the film was decided late in the script's development. O'Bannon had quickly dropped the film's original title, Star Beast, but could not think of a name to replace it. I was running through titles and they all stank, O'Bannon said, when suddenly that word alien just came out of the typewriter at me. Alien. It's a noun and it's an adjective. The word alien subsequently became the title of the film and by extension the name of the creature itself. Prior to writing the script to Alien, O'Bannon had been working in France for Chilean cult director um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Jado um, planned adaptation of Frank Herbert's classic sci-fi novel, Dune. Also hired for the project was Swiss surrealist artist H.R. Geiger. Geiger showed O'Bannon his nightmarish monochromatic artwork, which left O'Bannon deeply disturbed. I had never seen anything that was quite as horrible and at the same time as beautiful as his work. He remembered later. The June film collapsed, but O'Bannon would remember Geiger when Alien was greenlit and suggested to director Ridley Scott that he be brought on to design the alien, saying that if he were to design a monster, it would be truly original. After O'Bannon handed him a copy of Geiger's book Necronomicon, Scott immediately saw the potential for Geiger's design and chose Necronomicon 4, a print Geiger completed in 1976 as the basis for the alien's design. Uh, citing its beauty and strong sexual overtones. That creature could just as easily have been a male or female and was also a strong factor in the decision to use it. It could just as easily fuck you before it killed you, said the line producer Ivor Powell, which made it even more disconcerting. I mean, Christ. <laughs> a lot to digest there, guys. Okay, let's have a look at the chat. Graph, I remember when I was probably about eight, I went to Gravesend Library which in them days had a VHS rentals. I saw the cover for Alien was fixated on it. Thought it was a cool picture, but also disturbing in some ways. I could tell, um, my, um, I could tell me, I could tell by the cover it wasn't for kids though. Lol. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, 
we won't go into everything with the design and the creation and, and all that. Um, well, I mean, okay, let's go through these and then we'll jump onto, onto the films themselves. We can kind of just touch on elements of, of its characteristics and then we'll just talk about its appearance in the films, I think. Uh, appearance. When standing upright, the aliens are bipedal in form, though depending on their host species, they will adopt either a hunched stance or remain fully erect when walking, sprinting, or in hotter environments. Their overall stance and general behaviour seems to result from the mixture of their respective DNA of the embryo and its host. They have a skeletal, skeletal biomechanical um, appearance and are usually coloured in mutated shades of black, grey, blue, or bronze. Their body heat matches the ambient temperature of the environment in which they are found, so they do not make, excuse me, they do not radiate heat, making them indistinguishable from their surroundings through thermal imaging. In most of the films, adult aliens are capable of running and crawling along ceilings, walls, and other hard surfaces. They have great physical strength, having been shown to be capable of breaking through welded steel doors over time. They have black blade-tipped tails. The sharp tip was initially a small um, scorpion-like barb, but from aliens onwards, the blade design increased in size and changed in appearance to more closely resemble a slashing weapon. From alien resurrection onwards, the tails have a flat ridge of spines at the base of the blade. This was introduced to help them swim convincingly and was left intact in subsequent crossovers. The original shooting script for Aliens and the novelization both feature a scene in which Lieutenant Gorman is stung by the barbed tail and rendered unconscious. In the final cut of the movie, Gorman is knocked out by falling crates. As a weapon, the strength of the tail is very effective and has been shown to be strong enough to impale and lift a predator with seemingly little effort. Yes. Yes. Um, they have elongated cylindrical skulls with eyes underneath the visor. The eyes are always interesting because I've seen the images of um of the alien like you can see artwork of the alien skull where the eye sockets are fairly visible i've never noticed in any of the alien films any sort of visualization of eye sockets it's always been when i've seen images printed images of like artwork and somewhere i've got like a, the art book for alien somewhere and you can see a moment you can see not in the film, but this artwork where you've got the skull and you can see like eye sockets kind of undercover. But I've never noticed it in any of the films. I mean the only exception would be obviously the the newborn in Alien Resurrection, but that's obviously a very integral part of its appearance. God awful appearance. Um the character Ash speculates that the xenomorphs see by way of electrical impulse, similar to a shark's lateral line. This method is illustrated in the original Anniversary Predator PC game and reused for the Pred Alien 28 years later. The alien's inner set of jaws is powerful enough to smash through bone and metal. However, the creature, how the creatures see is uncertain. In Alien 3, a spherical lens was used to illustrate the alien's point of view, so when the film was projected anamorphically, the image exhibited severe distortion. In the novelization of the movie Alien, the creature is held or mesmerized by a spinning green light for several minutes. Um... Okay, it's talking about other things like the number of things they have and the different types of organisms they have. Don't care about that. Um, life cycle. Aliens are eusocial um, life forms with a caste system ruled over by a queen. Their life cycle comprises several distinct stages. They begin their lives as an egg, 
which hatches a parasitoid larval form known as a facehugger, which then attaches itself to a living host by, as its name suggests, latching onto its face. In the Alien 3 novelization, Ripley commented that the parasitoid, um, parasitoid would probably be able to use any host from as small as a cat to as large as an Asian elephant. Fucking hell, imagine that. The facehugger then impregnates the host with an embryo known as a chest burster, which, after a period of gestation, erupts violently from the host's chest, resulting in the death of the host. The chest burster then matures to an adult phase, shedding its skin and replacing its cells with polarized silicon. Due to its horizontal gene transfer during the gestation period, the alien takes on some of the basic physical attributes of the host from which it was born, something noticed by Ripley in Alien 3, when the xenomorph plaguing the complex moved on four limbs, having gestated within a quadruped, a dog in the theatrical release, and an ox in the director's cut, whereas all others had previously seen gestated within humans or bipeds allowing the individual alien to adapt the host's environment, uh, breathe, the air, etc. This is also shown in Alien vs. Predator and Alien vs. Predator Requiem, when an embryo, having gestated within a predator, displayed predator physical traits, um, the mandibles, from eruption onwards. Uh, the process of horizontal gene transfer is also shown to be two-way. In Alien Resurrection, Anna Ripley's clone, Ripley 8, is shown exhibiting numerous xenomorph characteristics, physical and behavioural. This is touched more upon the novelization, where it's described that when a host is infested with an alien embryo, it does not just infest the host like a parasite, but it also, like a virus, a major breakthrough in adaptive evolution, a way to guarantee that any host... Any host at all would provide whatever it was the developing embryo needed, even if when the host's body was inadequate. Uh, the adult phase of the alien is known by various different names. The adult aliens have been referred to as drones, warriors, workers, and sometimes soldiers, similar to the way ants have been defined. And that leads us on to the big mama jamma. We don't need to look at all these later ones. We can talk about those when we get into into well we'll talk we'll talk about a couple of the di different things but let's just talk about the queen quickly let's see what's going on in the chat uh fran it's uh it's why in the predator novels they explain that it's common for predators to store xenomorph eggs in their ships they then launch them down to planets with no humanoid races and then they hunt them and move on uh, have you seen the director's cut of alien that kind of changed its life cycle like the alien tries turning people into eggs yeah i i guess at that stage and that was one of the interesting things I was wondering where they were going to go potentially with Ridley Scott's newer films, which have kind of stopped now. Because I guess they wanted to kind of say, well, where did the egg come from? And the, the idea of the Queen came much later with, um, with Aliens, with, uh, with James Cameron's Aliens. So yeah, initially, we get one moment when we could see what is happening to these members of the crew going. And it was also partially explaining where the, all those eggs came from. Um, but I guess maybe they cut that out for pacing or, um, you know, just to not detract away and leave some mystery because part of the mystery was what was the space jockey and where were all those eggs come from? What what, what caused all those eggs? So it's interesting to see that, um, that different take, the initial take, I should say, on life cycle. The queen aliens, the big mamas, are significantly larger and stronger than the normal adults, being approximately 4.5 metres tall, 
15 foot. Their body structure also differs, having two pairs of arms. Yeah, the shorter pair of arms don't really seem to serve any sort of purpose that I've seen. Um, one large and one small. The queen's head is larger than those of other adult aliens and is protected by a large flat crest, like a crown, which varies from queen to queen. Unlike other aliens, the queen's external mouth is separately segmented from the rest of her head, allowing her to turn her mouth left and right almost to the point where it's facing perpendicular to the direction of the rest of her head. In the second film, Aliens, unlike other adults and queens, the queen had high heel protrusions from her feet. Slay queen, I guess, I don't know. Um, Egg-laying alien queens possess an immense ovipositor attached to the lower torso, similar to a queen termites. Like some insect queens, there appears to be no need for an alien queen's eggs to be fertilised. When attached to her ovipositor, the queen is supported by a biomechanical throne that consists of a lattice of struts resembling massive insect legs. That's so cool. In the original cut of Alien, the alien possessed a complete life cycle, with the still-living bodies of its victims converted into eggs. However, the scenes showing the crew converted into eggs was cut for reasons of pacing, leaving the ultimate origin of the eggs obscure. This allowed Alien director James Cameron to introduce a concept he had initially conceived for a spec script called Mother, a massive mother alien queen which laid eggs and formed the basis for the alien's life cycle. Cameron conceived the queen as a monstrous analogue uh, to Ripley's own maternal role in the film. In that vein, some critics have compared it to Grendel's mother. The Queen was designed by Cameron in collaboration with special effects artist, artist Stan Winston based upon an initial painting Cameron had done at the start of the project. Um, the Winston studio created a test foam core queen before constructing the full hydraulic puppet, which was then used for most of the scenes involving the large alien. Two people were inside working a twin set of arms and puppeteers off-screen worked its jaws and head. Although at the end of the film the Queen was presented full body fighting the power loader, the audience never sees the legs of the Queen, save, the, um, save those of the small-scale puppets that appears only briefly. Um, so yeah, we've seen how it produces the eggs. Um, we've seen the face hugger, we've seen the chest burster. So as mentioned a bit earlier on, the different types of alien, there's the runner alien, which we'll talk about a bit more when we get to Alien 3. We're, we're kind of just talking, focusing on the, the xenomorph, so we'll briefly talk about the films that it appears, but we're kind of focusing initially on on the xenomorphs. Uh, so Alien 3, we saw the runner, the dog alien, or ox alien. Um, I'm going to be honest, probably one of my least favourites for the, for the most part, due to the graphics or graphical limitations at the time. Um... We then also saw an alien resurrection, and this is probably actually my least favourite, to be honest, <laughs> the newborn. Uh, alien resurrection, due to significant genetic tampering in an attempt to recover DNA from the deceased Ellen Ripley and the alien queen within her, the, resultant cl the resulting cloned aliens show a number of minor human traits. The cloned queen inherits a perversion of a human womb, and as a result, it ceases to lay eggs and gives birth to a humanoid mutant hybrid. Uh, physically, the human alien newborn is very different from other alien um, young, being larger, with pale translucent skin, a skull-shaped face with eyes, a human tongue, and a complete absence of a tail. The newborn fails to bond with its alien queen mother, killing it and imprinting on the alien on the Ripley clone instead. 
the newborn was originally scripted by Joss Whedon as being an eyeless, ivory-white quadruped with red veins running along the sides of its head. It had an inner jaw with the addition of a pair of pincers on the side of its head. These pincers would have been used to immobilize its prey as it drained it of blood through the inner jaw. The creature was originally going to rival the queen in size, but Jean-Pierre Genet asked ADI to make the human-alien hybrid known as the newborn more human than alien. The newborn's eyes and nose were added to improve its expressions to make it a character rather than just a killing machine and give it depth as a human-like creature. So, I mean, I'm kind of interested about what we could have seen, but that's because I'm not really that fond at all of what we did see in Alien Resurrection. Uh, we also then saw the Pred Alien... Um, the, the the variation is a result of a facehugger impregnating a predator. The Pred Alien was first depicted in a painting by Dave Dorman and subsequently featured in the Alien vs. Predators comics and games. Pred Alien Chestburst debuted in the final scene of Alien vs. Predator, but did not make a full-on film appearance as an adult until Alien vs. Predator Requiem. The Pred Alien shares many characteristics with its host, such as long, hair-like appendages, mandibles, skin colour, and similar vocalisations. It is large, bulky, and possesses physical strength greater than that of the human-spawned aliens. Like human-born aliens, it also um, shown to be stronger than its host species, as evidenced by its ability to pin, push, and knock a predator away with ease. Uh, two more predominant ones to talk about. The Deacon. I mean, interesting, but I mean, we we got um, barely a glimpse of it. So the deacon, a dark blue deacon, is a different species that makes an appearance in Prometheus, though it clearly shares traits similar to the xenomorph, including a similar life cycle. The deacon is the result of a tr um, trilobite, which takes its name from a group of extinct marine anthropods, a large facehugger-like creature attacking and impregnating an engineer. After some time, it will burst of its host with the notable difference that it is born almost fully developed. Its fate is unknown, though the time comic book Prometheus Fire and Stone, also set on LV-223, features a mutated mountain with acidic veins which are implied to be the heavily mutated Deacon. So it turns into a mountain, apparently. And finally, the Neomorph, the pale white... It's not really pale white. The pale white Neomorph is featured in... Oh, okay, the little things on the floor, right. The pale white neomorph is featured in Alien Covenant. It was created through exposure to spores found growing on the engineer homeworld. The embryonic neomorph then gestates inside the host until it bursts out of its host's back, throat, or possibly other areas, using it mostly its head, which is sharp and pointed, similar to the deacon. Like the xenomorph, the neomorph has a tail, which is strong enough to tear off a human jaw. The Neomorph is a less weaponized version of the Xenomorph and lacks the facial features and biomechanical traits of the latter. The Neomorph is far more feral than the traditional Xenomorph. They are um, ferocious, um, voracious predators, often eating the corpses of their victims. Unlike the Xenomorph, the Neomorph appears to lack a hive structure since they propagate through mutated animal life. Ooh, let's have a look at the chat. Um, Fran, aliens bring a new meaning to the saying the female of the species I should probably sing that the female of the species is more deadly than the male can't remember who, uh, who actually did that song. I want to say The Beautiful South, but it really wasn't. Uh, the Gruff, apparently the hybrid alien originally had very obvious female genitals, yes. 
I've seen the images of that. But they decided against it because it was too vulgar. Well, that's a French director for you. Um, around the canon, they played more with the idea of aliens taking on more animal DNA in the 90s Kenner Toys range. You had um, Gorilla, Scorpion, Bull, Mantis variants, and more. Yes, I never got any of those toys. My parents wouldn't get me them. But a friend of mine had the Scorpion alien, I remember particularly. And I think the Mantis as well. They were very cool. Was there not potentially a cartoon series at one point? Or was there not talk of doing... Because, you know, there was the Toxic Avengers, there was Attack of the Kill Tomatoes. I'm sure at one point there was talk of an Aliens cartoon series. Not sure. Anyway, we are cracking on with time, so let's... Let's jump into the films. We'll talk briefly about each film. My, my feelings... Uh, on each film, and then we'll move on. So, first up, of course, Alien, 1979, directed by Ridley Scott, written by Dan O'Bannon, based on the story by O'Bannon and Ronald um, Chassette, follows the crew of the commercial space tug Nostromo, who, after coming across a mysterious derelict spaceship on an uncharted planetoid, find themselves up against an aggressive and deadly extraterrestrial set loose on the Nostromo. Stars Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, Veronica Cartwright, Henry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, and Yafit Koto. I mean, it's, this is an incredible film. I mean, Aliens has always been my favourite, but I mean, Alien is a strong, strong second, quite frankly. Um, it just encapsulated those moments of tension and unease and visually, I mean, it's a Ridley Scott film. For better or worse with some of his entries, you can't discount the visuals on, on display. Um, it just, I mean, when we first visit The Derelict, it just looks so incredibly mammoth and intense and terrifying. We find the space jockey, as it's affectionately known. Um which we, for better or worse, visited later on in Prometheus. Uh, we find the egg room, which, again, at this stage, we didn't know where these eggs have come through, come for, come from, where there's what appears to be potentially a security system, this kind of veil of blue light above the eggs. Never really explained what that is, but I, I always kind of thought of it as that's kind of like a, the eggs are in stasis, and then that's kind of like a bit of a security system. Um resulting in the first appearance of the chest of the, the facehugger on, on John Hurt. And as Fran in the chat has just said, the, the fact that the rest of the cast weren't aware of what was happening in that chestburster scene adds to it. They were generally generally panicking, genuinely panicking, um, when um, John Hurt's character, Kane, after being in stasis for a while or being in, in medic, the medic bay for a while after this face hug has been on his face they could not get off and when they tried to kind of cut it off uh, it just tightened around his neck and i think they saw their first instance of the blood being uh, kind of acidic in in value when it eventually drops off and dies and he seems fine having dinner with the rest of them and we get the iconic moment where we see the first chest buster it's just brilliant it's just brilliant i mean you can say what you want about the moment when it scurries away like yeah this is 1979 but I don't think the potential cheesiness of its movement and its little meh detracts from the tension that you've just had of 
that moment when he just is eating his food and then he starts coughing and the rest of the guys aren't really sure what's happening. And this really encapsulated the less is more approach with the alien. There's moments when uh, one of the characters, I can't remember any of the characters' names, um, is going searching um, for, was it Lambert? No, I don't know. Oh, Brett, that's it. When Brett is going searching for the cat and he's into this room with all this piping and if you look close enough you can see where the alien is just hiding, which I think is just brilliant. When it lowers itself down, you don't really see that many of its kills. It takes pretty much all but Ripley in this film. But uh, a lot of it is just the implication or the sudden scare. Um, one of my complaints with, with Alien Resurrection much later on is that all of the kills are the alien using its, its inner mouth. And I think it's potentially unfair of me to have that complaint because really the majority of the ways that the alien kills an alien is implied to be using its, its inner mouth. Um, but again, the implication, the setup and the scene override the fact that, oh, here's an alien that's just punching its mouth into someone's head. I just feel it was done better and scarier in, in the original films. And we don't really see too much of the alien in this, but when we do, it just looks incredible. And this film, yeah, a couple of, a couple of moments with the alien in the suit when it gets blasted out at the end, you know, doesn't look amazing. But for the most part, this film looks incredible and it's still absolutely incredible. And as mentioned in the chat, there was a director's cut, which is actually slightly shorter than the theatrical cut. Um which is kind of unheard of, but um, it's brilliant. It's, it's, it, the, the one that I re-watch is usually the director's cut. I haven't watched the theatrical cut for a little while. I just think the director's cut is slightly better paced, personally. But Ripley eventually kicks it out in space, and her and uh, Jonesy, the cat, go into hypersleep while they wait to be saved. Which then leads us to my favourite, easily... My favourite of the series, and that is Aliens, 1986. James Cameron. Uh, we talked briefly about James Cameron. I should give a shout out if people haven't listened to it yet on the uh, podcast feeds only on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We did the very first um, Ministry in Action, MIA podcast, me and Jamie, my co-host from Ministry of Dragons, where we looked at uh, James Cameron's T2, Terminator 2. We thought let's start off one of the biggest action films of all time. So if you like action films or if you like our banter, our, 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 our dialogue, then give that a listen. Uh, the listens for it have been really good. The numbers have been really good. So I'm, we've, we're very pleased about that. Um, and keep a lookout in the future for our next one, which will be on Universal Soldier, because uh, Jamie hasn't really seen very many Jean-Claude Van Damme films. Um, but we're now talking about James Cameron, his film 1986's Aliens. It's the sequel to the 1979 science fiction film Alien, the second film in the franchise, set in the far future. It stars Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley, sole survivor of the alien attack on her ship, when communications are lost with a human colony on the moon where her fur crew first saw the alien creatures, Ripley agrees to return to the site with a unit of colonial marines to investigate. Michael Bian, Paul Reiser, Lance Henriksen and Carrie Henn, along with Bill Paxton, he should get mentioned there, are featured in supporting roles. So, um, this I mean, kind of similar to the previous film, I always watch the director's cut of Aliens. Um... It's longer, it's notably longer than the theatrical cut, but it just adds so much. We see how the aliens infested the space station by Newt's family. 
uh, going and investigating the distress beacon. Well, it's not a distress beacon. They get the instruction from the um, from the corporation. That's not in the theatrical cut. We also get more of the backstory in regards to Ripley's daughter, and that kind of that's one of the key things in the film is her maternal, um, the the maternal struggle. You know, this film is essentially mother versus mother when it comes to the end of the film, and you lose a bit of that um, story when. <laughs> I've just seen the live chat. Um, you lose a part of that story when you take out the whole substory of um, of Ripley's mother, Ripley's daughter, I should say. Essentially, Ripley has been in stasis for I think the sixty or fifty-seven years, and part that's shown in the director's cut is when she finds out about her daughter who has lived a full life and passed away while she's been away in space and in stasis. So she's got that maternal loss and you know you should never outlive outlive your children it's not natural you know it's kind of the, the nature of life you grow up you have kids if that's what you want to do obviously i have to have kids you grow older your kids grow up you pass away your your kids have kids whatever they grow up they pass away their kids you know all that all that stuff just in terms of general the usual route doesn't always go that way of course you know um tragedies happen and in this instance tragedy was being stuck in stasis for 57 years um of which case it's then kind of happening again we meet um more employees of um Waitani um the Wayland Yutani not Waitani Wayland Yutani corporation who are basically saying you've destroyed a very expensive piece of our equipment so that's not good and she was kind of saying no actually i had to do it because there was a biological a killing machine that killed all the crew and was going to kill me. And they don't believe her, but then we also find that back on LV-426, it's been terraformed into a colony, and there's a whole group of colonists down there who they've just lost contact with. Where we get the introduction of the Space Marines, so this is very much an action-heavy film. Now, some people may complain that the tension was lost from alien because where we had one alien we've now got a whole group of them and some people may also say oh so one alien could take out a whole crew but a whole bunch of them always get killed in this film so how come a whole bunch of them couldn't kill well they weren't going up against marines who are trained in tactical combat with um you know space space rifles you know and also it's a film at the end of the day but there's so many moments in this which yes as fran mentioned after listening to the ministry in action are iconic they're coming out the walls man i mean christ when they are walking through the remains of this um mining station going into what looks to be the hive section and you can start seeing things moving on the wall and when one of them gets picked up and pulled away and when it all just starts going to shit so good and rip i mean the the reason why i love it when action is done right and james cameron as much as i'm not really a big fan of avatar and i've not seen an avatar film the, the sequel he knows how to make an action film i mean terminator terminator 2 um true lies i wouldn't necessarily say the abyss i've only seen the abyss once and it wasn't really for me personally but aliens especially you have those moments where it's not just going in and the aliens are pure cannon fodder 
you can see how quickly they took apart a huge marine team down to just a select few um and how once they got the jump on the marines it's very difficult for the marines to fight back or to escape which really puts the marines on the back foot they're going and they're gung-ho yeah we're badass yeah 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 frat bros and it's it's kind of um an analogy of vietnam i guess to an extent we're going you know not we the americans going into a foreign country rah 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 we're going to kick ass and then quickly realizing shit we're playing a, we're playing our game on a completely different chessboard and we are in their world and it's not the same as the world that we've been trained in it's it's absolutely excellent absolutely excellent um I didn't realise that Cameron wrote the script, apparently, for Rambo First Blood Part 2. Is that true? Yeah, screenplay by Sylvester Sloan James Cameron. Well, I never. Oh, did, not, did not know that. You learn something new every day. There's a lot of things about the production, difficulties of the shooting. I won't go into all that. Originally, Michael Biehn's part was played by James Remar of The Warriors and Dexter fame. But he was in London with Coke, which is not a good idea. And so he was fired, but he, you can see him very, very briefly in a couple of scenes, blinking the miss it moments. But this is where we are seeing aliens on the large scale. The aliens look slightly different. The heads are ridged. It could be because they're aging or the different casts, uh, potentially. Um, we're getting more into the story of the evil Wayland Utani Corporation, who initially, in the first film, weren't just picking up a distress signal. They had sent them in that location because they were already aware of what was on the planet, or to some extent. They had the instruction for Ash that to bring back the organism, the crew are expendable. So they already knew. So it's all these little awesome bits of storytelling there. And they're aware here, again, they're... They're playing dumb, but really their their whole idea is they want to weaponize Xenomorphs, which is just fucking stupid. When will they learn? When will they learn that their actions have consequences? But we also saw... I mean, this is the film that really turns Ripley into the badass. Um, you know, she's a badass and alien, but she's fighting against the odds and being a survivalist. In this, she's got the terror, she's got the nightmares, PTSD of what previously occurred on LV-426. But she's now in a situation where she's trying to get them to listen, trying to stop this from happening again, or for more people to die, or for it to spread. And then there's also the instances with um, with Newt, who's lost her family, and who she kind of forms a sort of a motherly bond with. And we get the introduction, as I mentioned earlier on, of the Queen. I mean, it's one of my favourite moments in cinema history, honestly. And I, you know, Halloween, the thing, John Carpenter, huge fan of all that, huge fan of straight-out horror. But fucking hell. I mean, Terminator 2 and Terminator have some incredibly iconic moments. And I know iconic is such an overused term. It's probably, if you did a word count on the use of iconic in the last two weeks of uploads to the um, Ministry of Horror feed, probably go off the roof. But the moment when after she's found Newt and she's got her away and she's killed uh, killed the, um, the face huggers near her and the eggs opening up and she turns to realise, fuck, I'm in a room full of eggs and you've just got the heavy laboured breathing round the corner and she, opens, she turns, turns and you see the camera pan up. I mean... On the on the action podcast, we talked about how the nuances of action films these days just aren't there. Like everything is, camera's moving really fast. It's a Michael Bay film, or it's a Zack Snyder film, and 
you know, they have their moments, whatever, and if you like it, that's cool. But for me, it's just everything's moving so quick, you can't focus. Transformers going everywhere. But in these older action films, you would have those nuanced moments where, okay, let's take a moment because something is going to happen. Something's going to go down. And when you see the reveal of just the appearance, before the queen even moves, just the appearance of it, it's fucking incredible. It's fucking incredible. Honestly, excuse my French, but absolutely brilliant storytelling and visualizations. It's so good. I love it. I'm probably actually after stream going to watch Aliens. I'm away this weekend, but I may watch uh, Aliens beforehand. Um, or I might suggest it while I'm away. Fuck it. <laughs> so we get the fight. We get the um, get away from her or stay away from her. Come the exact term, you bitch. Um, just just the the fight when she stands Ellen Ripley stands up to a queen alien I mean it's, what, what more can you say what more can you say so 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 good um, so let's now move on to the sequel because of course there was going to be a sequel because this was hugely immensely successful and that takes us to Alien 3 and I would probably have to say, in the mainline Alien series, for the most part, this is actually probably my least favourite. And that probably is a bit weird, because I'm a David Fincher fan, obviously of his later films, um, and Alien Resurrection isn't very good. Um, it's just not a very good film. But Alien 3... It had such a troubled production in terms of the, the scripts. So many different stories. Even the ones that are more interesting, I still didn't actually think were actually that good or didn't seem that good. So I can't say I ever heard a script spec or a story, you know, spec for Alien 3 that I thought, yeah, that's fucking brilliant. I mean, one of the more famous ones is this idea of a wooden planet, a wooden religious planet. I mean, again, that does nothing for me. I'm like, all right, okay, fine. Um... They're a lot of trouble with this, and one of the first things that did the angered fans was killing off Newt and Hicks before the film starts. Um, when the the ship is in space, a fire breaks out, causing these uh, the escape pod to eject, and there was um, another there was a face hugger or face huggers on board. There was an egg on board, which is is plausible. I mean. The Queen snuck on the ship and could have easily brought an egg with it, maybe. You didn't necessarily see it full body when it was chasing after them on the escape from uh, LV-426. So, you know, it's it, th th there's, there's plausibility there. Um, but they kill off Hicks and Newt during the crash, which is very unfortunate. From a, from a story perspective, I understand it to an extent because you can end up going down the route of building up this ever-expanding Scooby gang, for want of a better term. Um, for example, like Batman. I like the extended Batman family. I think there is a reason why the Batman films predominantly focus on Batman. And you can ask, you can't say the question of, well, you know, I mean, 
obviously we've had Robin, but of the iterations of Robin, but you can always ask the question of, oh, I mean, Christ, why, why have we had, ever had a proper, you know, um, Tim Drake or Jason Todd or, you know, a proper um, um, first one whose name's completely escaped my mind. I was going to say Dick Wilson, but that's not his name, Dick Tracy. No, no, no. Um, the one that's Nightwing. Chat will let me know. Why have we ever had those featured? Or, you know, there was Batman and Robin or uh, Batman Forever. Obviously, those ones aren't quite as popular. Dick Grayson, thank you, Fran. Um, but I think there's a reason that they have that, is because the character is this lonely, brooding man. He's the lone protector fighting off against Gotham. And when you look at the comic books, which I do enjoy the ones that I've, I've kind of read when I've dipped into it, I like the aspect of the Bat family. You know, it makes sense that he's got his first ward that he took in, who then outgrew him and went to become his own hero and eventually took the mantle briefly in, in Dick Grayson, who became Nightwing. We then had Tim, uh, we then had Jason Todd, who um, was a bit brash and ended up getting killed, and then him getting brought back as the Red Hood, who, you know, was a, a villain but became an anti hero. And. Tim Drake, who seems to get the short end of the of the of the stick, becoming after being Robin, becoming Red Robin, and just you know sort of being a bit on the outs, and and also um, his son Damian Wayne, ins and outs and all that, and you know Batgirl, and on the slightly outside of it, there's Batwoman, who I never actually see featured in any sort of group stories. But the point that I'm getting to is, you could potentially have an expanding group of uh, of good guys and whilst they're beloved characters narratively i guess that then kind of pigeonholes you because you either have to kill them later on in the film because you need to have those emotional moments and it's going to hit more emotionally if someone you become attached to gets killed than random prisoner 12 but it's then going to anger people because they're like oh why'd you kill hicks oh why'd you kill newt oh fuck's sake um so doing it off screen while i don't like it I do understand it. Um, what I do find difficult with this film is it's very, very dark. Not not so much just in the colour. Like the colour tone of it, this, this orangey look, that's fine. But it's just really dark. We get the appearances of the alien, I mean, we see it being a bit more nasty in terms of we can see it munching and eating people, which is something we haven't really seen before. We've seen them, you know, fling acid, their acid blood on people. We've seen them attack with their tail, more so with the queen. Um, you know, we've kind of just seen them grab and take people away to impregnate them. Uh, this one doesn't seem to be following any sort of uh, reproductive type cycle and obviously there isn't a queen here it's it's just this one but there is a potential queen gestating and ripley but this one just seems to be kill 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 but again i guess with this new the the, the new biological cycle with the queen introduction then what, what else would it be doing other than trying to kill people and without any eggs available then it's not got anything but it's kind of thing if you kill everyone then who are you going to impregnate more eggs to create more aliens i don't know um <laughs> just little things like that um, and let's also the appearance of the alien because they've gone for this um, four legged approach this dog alien or ox alien it, it has a reliance on CGI and the CGI I don't know what it looked like in 1993 when this was released it doesn't look good now on Blu-ray, on, on Blu-ray especially and I guess some films 
transferring to Blu-ray or 4K, it doesn't do it any favours. You get, you get certain films where the upscaling or the, the rescan into 4K highlights some of the issues that would have been hidden in 240p or 4, 480p CRT TVs with scan lines, you wouldn't notice some of those details necessarily. So maybe this did look better pre-HD. And it's just unfortunate that the more recent appearances, the more recent viewings I've had of this have been on my, my Blu-ray Alien collection. But I mean, the original cut of this I haven't seen for a long time, but the theatrical cut um, uh, is... You know, the theatrical cut I haven't seen for a long time. The director's cut, the producer's cut, I should say, because the director didn't want to do a cut of this um, because he had such a bad experience with um, with in, in uh, 20th Century Fox um, interrupting and changing things. Yeah, it, it just doesn't... The alien doesn't look great. The story is incredibly dark, but we've got some interesting elements with Ripley having been impregnated on the, the way down. So she is having to deal with an ever-growing alien inside of her. Fran in the chat. Am I right in thinking they were considering making the planet wooden in this? Yeah, at one point. That's one of the, the script specs that apparently was more intriguing. But, I mean, I've, I've read up on all the various different versions. I think William Gibson, who created almost, basically created Cyberpunk, had done a script, potentially that one. No, I think that one might have been a Vincent Ward script who did the eventual story for this. Um... Yeah, there was just a number that just uh, none of them sounded that all that interesting to me personally. But yeah, this film, both versions of it from memory, just drag, just really, really kind of drag. I mean, Ripley's isolated now on a in a dangerous planet. There's this religious element. Everyone's ab abstinent, but really they're not because when it comes down to it, she's on a prison planet full of prisoners and. You know, there's uh, a lot of um, innate issues there. They've also got no weapons on account of it being a prison planet. Um, one interesting element is the wreckage of um, Bishop. And I believe she gets some information um, from Bishop, from his mutilated um, android corpse. Da-da-da-da-da. Uh, yeah, so yeah, Ripley finds out in this film that Wayne Utani hoped to turn the aliens into biological weapons. So where's the part when she finds Bishop? Um, let me just kind of scroll through this. Ripley finds the damaged Bishop in the prison's garbage dump before being cornered by four inmates and almost gang-raped. Oh, Jesus. After being saved by Dylan, Ripley returns to the infirmary and reactivates Bishop, who, before asking to be permanently shut down, confirms that a facehugger came with them to Fiorine, um... Fiorina, under knowledge of the Wayne Utani Corporation. Growing to full size, the alien kills Murphy, Boggs, and Reigns. Okay, so it just basically confirmed that they they knew that uh, that she was that the alien was on the ship. Um sorry, I've got a notification that Amazon have charged me seven pound ninety seven. What the fuck is that for? I'll have to check that after stream. Bastards. <laughs> right. Anyway. Um, da, 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 da. So, yeah, we then get the, the finale when the alien is uh, chasing the dance corridor, kills basically everyone. And um, we then get... It's, it, its death scene is pretty interesting, actually, where it gets covered in this um, molten stuff and burnt. 
that was a decent moment. The finale of this is quite decent, but there isn't many moments of good attention leading up to that, to be fair. And they also the moment where the real life or the human or a version or whatever of the human bishop arrives basically saying look come with us you'll be fine we can save you you know just don't the focus is really you've got an alien embryo and you we want that because that's the perfect time for the Utani corporation to get it is if it's not fully grown yet if it's not grown out of them then they can contain it come with us but she says Nafam fuck that and throws herself into the furnace, holding captive the infant queen as it erupts from her. The facilities are closed down. Morse, the sole survivor, is led away as Ripley's final logbook recording from the Nostromo plays. Yeah, I, at some point I'll do another Alien watch through of the series, but Alien 3, it never really improves for me personally. It's not one that's ever kind of stuck with me in a good way, personally. Um, which moves us on to Alien Resurrection. I don't necessarily like this film. Um, it's got a weird humour to it. I don't know if that's just the French sensibilities of director Jean-Pierre, you know. Um, but it's... It's an odd film. It's an odd film. So, again, we're set many, many more years into the future. This time set 200 years after Alien 3. Ellen Ripley is cloned, and an alien queen is surgically removed from her body. The uh, USM hopes to breed aliens to study and research on the spaceship USM Origa, using human hosts abducted and delivered to them by a group of mercenaries. Uh, the aliens escape their enclosure, and Ripley and the mercenaries attempt to escape and destroy the Origa before it reaches Earth. Um, additional roles in the film so the Scorny Weaver, Winona Ryder, uh, Ron Perlman, Don Hedaya, J.E. Freeman, Brad Dorif, and Michael Wincott. Brown the in the chat. I hate the basketball scene in this. Yeah, it's fucking dumb. It's dumb. There's a lot in this where it's just the, the humor elements and the dialogue between the mercenaries. I guess it's to set their personalities and, you know, their space pirates at the end of the day. But it all just is a bit like it's just tonally it's a strange film. Um, it is quite violent in this in terms of uh, in terms of the gore at times. It does have some inventive moments. I will give it that. The underwater scene is the particular kind of standout when we see the aliens swimming in their um, when they're chasing after the um, the the space pirates through the water. There's visually like some okay moments when um, they're climbing out of the water and climbing up this ladder. And one of the aliens, I think it's the first time we actually see an alien spit, because I'm sure in this one we actually see it spit the acid in one of the guy's faces. I can't remember any of their names. But here's the guy who's got these like twin pistols that are attached to his arms that kind of shoot out, kind of from holstered into, into his hands straight away. And he goes, bang, 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 bang. Um, but he gets spat in the face, and his face is burning, and he's attached to um, the, the guy in the wheelchair, the, the engineer, whose name I can't remember. A couple of interesting moments there. We do get Brad Dourif playing Brad Dourif. You know, you can't really go wrong with Brad Dourif playing a, a crazy scientist. And his death is quite gnarly, to be fair. And this is one of those films, like I said, it's the second alien film I ever saw. And when I saw the Alien Queen was in this, I was like, oh yeah, here we go, Alien Queen. But I mean, fucking hell, it's just immobilised. 
And I guess that's part of the cloning process. And we do see the dangers of cloning when, when Ripley sees the various clones that came before her because she is Ripley 8. So we see clones 1 to 7 and they're a fucking mess. So we do see that aspect. Um, so this queen, it's just, it's just immobile. It has, instead of the egg sac, it has the womb. Don't, don't mind all that element. And it gives birth to that fucking monstrosity, the newborn. And I applaud them for trying to do something new. I'm not going not gonna to shit on that, of course. But I didn't really like the look of it. I mean, it was quite nasty in terms of its kills. I mean, when we see Bradder, if he's been meshed up into the wall and it's got the same sort of orangey-black colour tones as Alien 3, so I don't mind that necessarily. There is that kind of infected sort of look to it, I guess, with that kind of orangey-red and black hue. It gives that sort of feeling of an infection. And when the newborn is born and it goes up to the, the queen and it sneers at it because it can't really connect to it, smacks its jaw off. I get that it's shocking. That's a way of going out with the old guy in with the new, but I mean, fucking hell, the alien queen was so cool. This thing isn't with its pot belly and its haunched over appearance. And when it goes up to um, Brad Dourif and just bites into his skull, it's moments like that that I always think in horror films, when something bites into someone's head, I'm like... Fucking hell, that's... Ugh. It's like in um, the original Creep Show, the creature in the box, when it pulls someone in and bites into their head. It's moments like that where I'm just like, oh man, that's fucking nasty. And we see it again later on. I, I think it either bites into or it grabs one of the marines and squishes its head. I think it might do it with its hand. Yeah, I think it just explodes it hits its head with its hand, something like that. Um, but we also see it when it interacts with Cool, and uh, some people don't really like Winona Ryder in this. I think her performance is fine, but it's a bit strange because she's almost playing an emo android. Androids have been in all the in all the films so far, obviously Bishop in two and three, and uh, and an Ash in one, and this one cool, so A B C, and later on we get David D. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's it's a bit of a weird take because she's almost resentful that she's an android. So I guess yeah, it's two hundred years in the future. They probably develop more emotive type uh, coding, I don't know. I didn't mind her in this. But yeah, the tone is weird. The violence in it is pretty good at some some points. Like The aliens do have elements of threat to them themselves. But the newborn, I just really didn't like the appearance of. I mean, it does look a bit creepy if you look at it in isolation like when it was on screen a moment ago. But... Yeah, this this film was generally a disappointment to me. I mean, I guess if they'd have continued it, they do get to Earth at the very end. I can't remember if that's in the director's cut or or, or not, but at the very end of it, they do land on Earth, and Earth is a shit a shit t uh, a shit tip at this point. But I mean, there's a lot of things like it's two hundred years after Alien Three, but somehow they've got the DNA from a furnace for Ripley and the Queen. I mean, I don't know if they've got handprints from somewhere or. Or how, but why would it take four? I don't know. Maybe they got the DNA but kept it on on status till the technology was there. I don't know. A lot of questions for why they went down the route of 200 years into the future. But it would imply that the alien species has been extinct up until this point, which is why they've been so focused on, on Ripley. Um, 
And I guess her interactions of, you know, her being this clone, she's got partial alien DNA, and there's moments where she's, like, stroking it in an alien's face, or she's being carried by aliens, and blah, blah, blah. And there's interesting elements to it, but I didn't really... didn't really necessarily like it. Uh, apparently, the storyline of Resurrection has been continued in the comic book series Alien vs. Predator vs. Terminator and the books Aliens Original Sin and Alien Sea of Sorrow. Didn't know that. Fans of the... Um, I think I've listened to maybe potentially Sea of Sorrow, but I don't remember any of those connections. So I may have to look into that a bit later on. Um, so we're going to briefly talk... Very briefly talk about Alien vs. Predator, Alien vs. Predator 2. Uh, I don't really consider these two films as part of the direct lineage of the Alien films, so I'll only briefly talk about them. The Alien vs. Predator is a Paul W.S. Anderson film, so it looks like a Paul W.S. Anderson film. It looks like Resident Evil in terms of the spinny slow-mo camera moments. Uh, cast of characters you couldn't give a shit about personally. It has moments of it being a fun action film at times. But it does go down this route that I always find a bit strange of the Predator teaming up or there being a mutual respect between the Predator and the human, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing. Uh, it's alright, I guess, but it always just seems a bit like... Mm, I prefer the Predator when it wants to kill humans. <laughs> But I mean, the story in itself is kind of interesting of um, these kind of Aztec temples that the predators would send their young yakta, or however you pronounce it, young predators, to train where they'd basically birth these eggs. Uh, people would, uh, these previous tribes of humans would offer up sacrifices to their alien overlords, the predators, who would be impregnated with alien embryos for the predators to hunt, but in those moments where the aliens may have overrun them, it would be like, right, total destruction, wipe it out, move on. But Wayland finds one of these um, hidden, frozen away, one of these uh, temples where they find the eggs. They find a lay laying dormant queen in stasis um, and produce the aliens and the predators also come down and blah, 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 blah. I guess this is an okay action film, but for a Predator film or an alien film, I mean, whoever wins, we lose. Yeah, the audience loses. I'll agree with that. The tagline, the poster. It just has those moments of really cheesy 2000 slow-mo when the camera's like, look, we've got a really cool camera spinning around. Like, I don't give a shit. Fuck off. I don't, yeah. Alien versus Predator. I mean... I guess the redeeming factor in this is the Queen does look badass. The Queen is enormous. It is enormous. Um, and we see a brief moment of it chasing and fighting around the outside, but it's, again, it's you don't have the nuance. Paul, Paul W.S. Anson doesn't have the nuance of um, James Cameron to do those slow reveals or to make it seem impactful. And it doesn't help that you don't really give a shit about any of the characters. Um... Yeah, move, moving on. That's enough that I can say about Alien vs. Predator. The less said about Alien vs. Predator Requiem, I think even the better. Greg and Colin Strauss, who are effects guys, wrote and directed, or directed, I should say, um, this based on a Shane Salemo script. Man. 
So young me, who liked a lot more kind of gore stuff, was even let down by this film. I remember when it was coming out, there were all these sort of red band trailers or R-rated trailers, and you would see like, oh man, this looks really ultra-violent and gory. But it's that for the sake of it. Like, there's no, again, there's no good characters in this. There's no one where you can be interested in them. And it is gore for gore's sake. I mean, the Pred Alien looks pretty cool. I'll give it that. And it's got a new way of impregnating where it can basically impregnate someone directly. It doesn't need to, it can do its own gestation period. It doesn't need to create or have an egg to create a face hugger. But it does that to a pregnant woman in a hospital. And it's just well, things like that, which is just like nasty. Like the killing of a kid in a film is just like, oh, come on, that's just fucking unnecessary. That's just, that's cheap. Um, <clears throat> and you, you kind of get the idea between a good horror type director or writer and a bad one. A good one knows how to build up tension, how to make kills effective. A bad one just goes, yeah, and we can have this person have their face burnt off and you can see the face being burnt off and people are just cannon fodder. It really deflates me and it defeats any sort of interest I have in it. I couldn't name you any of the character names for Alien vs. Predator Requiem. I mean, at least in Alien v. Predator, we've got um, Wayne Yutani. Um, I think we see a moment of... Um, the Utani Corporation, which we never really hear much about, other than it's Wayland Utani, and we have Peter Wayland, I think, in this. There is a little moment of that, but I mean, who gives a fuck? You know, at this point, it's like, oh, okay. It, it, it bombed, and not surprisingly, because it was absolute ass piss, quite frankly. I don't like that film. We'll then move on to Prometheus. God, I have mixed feelings on Prometheus. So we'll talk very, very briefly on this, on the fact that it doesn't technically have a xenomorph in it. We have the deacon that we've mentioned, but I mean, we don't see what happens to the deacon. We just see it being birthed, and I guess that's like a little hint. We get ideas of where the aliens have come from, so Idris Elba's character basically works out off-screen exactly what's happening here. It's all about the looking at the origins of man and where did we come from and the origins in the stars and... You, we see the engineers coming to a, a you know, pre-life Earth and uh, using this black liquid to dissolve their DNA down into our water, which then leads to DNA creation and life and blah, 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 blah. The film looks gorgeous, right? I'll give it that. Then in search, the Peter Whelan, now as an old man, gets all these people together, going in search of our origins. So going to this distant moon which is you know light years and light years away and when they get there there's nothing nothing there really they can see these um space remnants these kind of digital echoes of something bad happening in this kind of uh temple type thing and they find a room with all these like urns on the floor and on the wall, you see what looks to potentially be an image of the Deacon, potentially an image of the Neomorph or an alien Xenomorph type thing. That's the closest you'll get to Xenomorph. And these urns start sweating out this black liquid, which then creates, mutates the wildlife. It's the idea being that potentially implied that um, the creators, the engineers, didn't like how earth was going how humanity was going so or a potential based you know ecosystem and we're looking to eradicate it with this um liquid but that you know that turned on them at least on this 
testing planet because we get the, the confirmation that this isn't the home of the, the, the engineers because, Christ, why do that in this film? We can do that in another film. This is a testing planet when it, was, when it all went wrong. This thing mutates, it infects people, it infects uh, Elizabeth Shaw's boyfriend Charlie, who when he has sex with her kind of passes on to her. And that's a very cool scene when she takes out this thing that's growing in her stomach, which then grows to epic proportions, the trilobite. But, you know, there's just things in it. I mean, the moment when um, the the derelict, what looks to be a version of the derelict, but the, the, space, the, the space jockeys type of ship, the cylindrical ship, uh, the uh, you know, kind of in a circular sort of shape ship, crash lands and it rolls and she doesn't run sideways. Like, I know this thing is massive, so its area of length, area of coverage is probably quite massive, but you'd think if it's rolling in a direction, don't run in that direction, run diagonally away from it. I don't know. I don't know. So it's not a terrible film, but it's not great either. And that leads us on to one that I was very hyped for and one that I found this artwork was incredibly misleading. That was Alien Covenant. Good lord. Shit the bed on this one. In that artwork you can see a number of xenomorphs. The name Alien is back in it. We also can see what looks to be the ridge, the outline at the very top centre, the ridged outline potentially of a Queen Alien head crest. There's no Queen Alien in this. One of the characters which we came to bond with and in Covenant, she's killed off screen. Uh, Elizabeth Shaw, her fate was kind of shit. Um, Michael Fassbender returns, so I haven't really mentioned him as David, the android in the prior film. Um, he has remained on this planet because uh, another gr there's a group that are going to look to colonize a new earth because i think earth is kind of not doing too well and they see a distress beacon on this planet uh, i don't think the planet is lv426 but it's another another planet adjacent um yeah it doesn't i don't think it says what the name of the planet is um, but we find David there, we f but before that we also find that um, everything is dead, but there's these strange plant life which releases black spores, and when inhaled or ingested, whatever, that then causes people to burst out with these neomorph things, which are incredibly violent. The neomorph themselves are quite cool. Like I say, incredibly violent. When they even grow bigger, there's moments where they just eat through someone's neck, causing their head to come off. And they're just incredibly, incredibly nasty little creatures. Um, and we also do see a, a, a xenomorph. I think we see two xenomorphs uh, in this. And their appearances are okay. Well, they look good, but the use of them, I think, was kind of, kind of poor. I mean, one of them gets killed pretty quickly. But it's just the dumb decisions of the people in this film, man. Like, when one of the characters is first encountering a Neomorph, they're just running around in areas with compressed gas and stuff, firing off a shotgun like a maniac. And I guess you could say that there's panic and whatnot, but there's a couple of dumbass moments early on. More so later on, when one of the characters who's fairly religious, that's part of his character trait, sees a, a Neomorph stood over the corpse of one of his crew. It's, it's bitten through her neck, through her, her whole neck, and her head's come off. 
And uh, David, the android, tries to protect it because it's his creation. He's essentially he essentially turned up at the um, the home planet with uh, Elizabeth Shaw, but decided because there was all these um, all these uh, space jockeys there, and decided to just drop shit on them, dropped all the cylinders, so just destroyed and mutilated all of them because of whatever his reasons were. I can't remember. But he then also, he wanted to be a creator because part of it is that he didn't want to just be a creation. He didn't want to be subservient to man. He felt it was better than man. And man can create life. So does that make man better than him? Does that make man a god? Things like that, that sort of story. Um, so he decides he wants to try and make life. And he essentially kills and uh, experiments on Elizabeth Shaw off, off camera. It's just really, you know, you see these, these images of uh, what he'd kind of done to her and it's just kind of sad because Elizabeth Shaw is quite a nice character, but I guess that's the same sort of feeling some people had at the time, especially when uh, Alien 3 came out and seeing that Hicks and Newt had uh, just sort of been killed. It's it's just a bit disrespectful to the characters, but I guess if the focus wasn't on their character, then what can you do? Just a bit of a shame. Um, yeah, so after that, he um, he sees the Neomorph, and David tries to protect it because it's life that he feels that he's created. But uh, it gets gunned down. It gets gunned down by this um, Billy Crudup's character, who we then find an egg. So the implication is that through his different workings, he's created, through experimentation, this bio-organism, this egg-type thing. And it opens up, and he says, go on, look in it. And Billy Crudup... Bear in mind he's just shot to death this massive alien that David tried to protect. Sticks his head in there. And surprise, surprise, a face hugger latches on. Next thing we know, he's led on the ground. And pretty quickly, uh, a miniature um, alien. So not like uh, the little face, not like the little chest burst that wriggles away, but a miniature little alien with legs and arms erupts from his chest. So the gestation period seems to be a lot quicker. And it's just like, it's just these moments. I mean, the film looks great, as per Ridley Scott films, but there's just so many dumb moments in it that really detract, which is a shame. But this is one of those films that I saw in the cinema, very hyped, thinking, yeah, aliens are back in it, awesome. This is where Prometheus was going. And I remember leaving the cinema thinking, it wasn't that good, really, was it? I mean, Michael Fassbender's performance, his two versions of um, of uh, David, he plays David and also Walter One, who's a good synthetic android. Their interactions are good, and when he essentially takes over, I mean, there's a moment when they're sort of teaching him to play a recorder or something, which is very weird. Very weird. But when he kind of takes over his appearance, and when he lets um, Catherine Watson's character Daniels know that I'm not actually Walter. Sorry, I'm David, and I'm putting you in cryosleep. And he's basically got a whole ship full of um, people in cryosleep, and he's got some alien embryos with him. It's one of those things where that moment alone, I'd have been kind of intrigued for this final part of this trilogy, which it doesn't look like we're getting anymore. Um, but the film, the moments leading up to that, the whole film, I was just like... Ah. No, no, I don't care. Um, so I don't think at this present stage we are getting a sequel to Covenant. Now, we are getting a Fede Alvarez standalone 
seventh film in the series, which is being shot as we speak. Very, very interesting. I mean, I should mention along the way, at one point, there was a talk of a sequel uh, being directed by Neil Bloomkamp, Bloomkamp, the guy did District 9, set after Aliens with an aged Ripley and also a still-alive Hicks, you know, but burnt-up Hicks, um, which in feature the concept art featured this like biomechanical warfare of like people wearing alien-type suits, uh, Queen Alien rampaging. It did, he did a lot of concept art, and it did look like it was going to go ahead, but supposedly Ridley Scott said, no, that is going to have to wait until my next Alien film. And I think I think this, these conversations were after Covenant. I can't remember if it was before or after. Um, yeah, Neil Bloomkamp's um, purported title, Alien Awakening, which would be tied to the first two Alien films taking place after Aliens and foregoing the other sequels. It was cancelled in favour of Scott's own untitled third prequel, also purportedly titled Alien Awakening, um, which was later also cancelled following the disappointed box office of Alien Covenant. In February 2019, James Cameron stated that he was working on reviving Bloomkamp's project. In June 2020, Brandywine Production revealed that a screenplay for a new installment in the original series called Alien V, Alien 5, centred around Ripley, had been written by Walter Hill and David Geiler. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, published in September 22, Hill confirmed that the proposed alternative sequel involving Weaver would not be moving forward, which is a shame. Um, and then, yeah, we're now looking towards uh, a Fede Alvarez-directed film produced by Ridley Scott. Alvarez pitched the idea to Scott years prior and now has the opportunity to be involved. That November, Kylie Spaney was announced to be in talks for the lead role under the working title Alien Romulus. The film was scheduled to begin on February 6th at Origo Studios in Budapest, Hungary. In March 2023, Isabella Merced joined Spaney in an undisclosed role. The official date of filming is set for March 9th. So that leads... That leads us to the end of our alien chat and to the end of this uh, this week's show. God damn, this is getting to this is getting to this bumper length episodes from last year. Two hours forty three minutes. Fucking hell. We will do a watch party after this, but it's gonna just be the one film. Uh we will talk about that. So if you are watching on, on stream, twitch.tv forward slash Tezius T E Z Z I U S. We do watch parties most Fridays, depending on uh, availability, scheduling and stuff. So we will look to do a film after this. Um, but if you are watching or listening later on on podcasts, I'm just going to add in some music. Add in some background music. Background ambiance. There we go. Uh, please give the Twitch channel a follow. Uh, Twitch.tv So if you're listening to some podcast platforms of choice, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Please give the uh, the show a review. Ideally five stars, but, you know, I'm not going to shill for that. Give me an honest review, whatever you like. If you like the show, if you don't like the show, uh, all well and good. You can follow the show on Twitter at Ministry underscore Horror. We're also on the, uh, the Discord. We're also on the Discord for the what was the MOS Network, but is now the Wrestling Arena. Uh, we have a Ministry of Horror channel on there, so you can check that out. Say hi. It's a very nice community. We always talk horror and all that nice stuff. Um, and yeah, that's it for me. So thank you very much. Stick around, obviously, if you're watching live, but this is for the purpose of the recording. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>